everyone, welcome to episode 102 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina, with a special focus on the SCG Tour. Uh, I am coming to you from San Diego, California. This is kind of our first remotely recorded episode in a while. For a while, that was all we did since I was recording from Germany, but now we got to kind of gear up and do this the same way we used to do it. So a little bit of a, not quite as nice as recording in our house, but uh, Collins is also here from North Carolina. Hey, Collins. What's up, Chris? Yeah, I am, while you are in California, I am currently sitting in your room in our (laughs) regular setup. So (laughs) same old, same old for me, but. Yep. And probably, you know, audio quality is not going to be quite as high on this episode. Uh, You know, we've mostly worked it out, but it won't be quite as perfect as, as how we try to put it together, which uh maybe need to eat a little bit of crow here i i do want to say before we get started and i haven't gotten really any pushback from this but i do feel like i i want to clarify a little bit uh what i was talking about on our last episode when jeremy asked me about like podcasting tips and stuff i feel like my tone was a little bit aggressively critical of other magic podcasts and i didn't hear from anybody who like felt hurt by it or anything but my intention was definitely not to be like hypercritical of other people who are out there making magic content like anybody who's doing a podcast or making any other kind of thing like i'm really glad that they are out there doing that it was just you know kind of an unedited uncensored unscripted jeremy was asking me about things that i had noticed and one of the things that i I've noticed in other podcasts are these things that I really should have tried to phrase it more of like tips on things you can do to make your own podcast or content more listenable. And I think I probably just, the words didn't come out quite right to communicate what I was hoping to. So for anybody who does their own podcast or was thinking of it, I really hope that I wasn't like gatekeeping or anything like that. It's just like listening through what I was saying uh i just want to be clear that i i would much rather like welcome everybody who is making magic content than say like your content isn't good enough or anything like that because that that was never my intent yeah i mean you know listening thinking back on that conversation i do think that most of your stuff was presented at least from my perspective as more like constructive criticism and i you know i believe that's how you intended it and so i i think that's how it came across for the most part i hope so i hope so i just want to be as clear as possible and and so but yeah take that hopefully in the light that i'm trying to present it at so today we are going to be talking about m20 we are finally getting around to our set review jeremy had to go and win an open the week that we were gonna do this so this got pushed (laughs) back just (laughs) a little bit just a little bit um yeah it's fine this this way they kind of get the benefit of i haven't been around because i'm on vacation so i haven't seen as much but i know that Everybody has been jamming a lot of M20 standard preparing for SCG Worcester. So hopefully this set review gets the benefit of a little more information going in. So that might be good too. Uh, I've been playing a good bit of the standard format now. So my uh, my assessment of the cards is going to be a little more than just assumption this time. So yeah, uh, that might be, you know, good or bad. We'll see. Uh, I think nothing wrong with that. We'll we'll see. We'll definitely welcome any feedback on, you know, the slightly more informed set review. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, for sure. Before we get into that, definitely want to take a second and talk about we did get hit with a ban in Modern. Uh, lots of calls for Faithless Looting and stuff, but ultimately, Watsi, in their infinite wisdom, went with just Bridge from Below out of the Hogak deck. So, initial yeah. thoughts on this ban? 
Um, I like it. Um, I so the card that I expected them to ban was actually Altar of Dementia, but I can see why they opted not to do that for a couple of reasons, and I think that their ban of Bridge was very similar along the lines of what I was thinking, but maybe even smarter in some other contexts because the biggest problem with the Hogak deck in my mind was its ability to like one shot the opponent in by you know being able to mill your entire deck and then mill them out with the kind of the Hogak bridge combo and banning bridge out of that also kind of neuters that ability so it has the same effect on the Hogak deck which is nice but a bridge from below is a card that's just so much more likely to be a problem again in the future whereas mm-hmm. i think that altar of dementia is less likely to be so particularly without a card like bridge um so i think that it was probably a smart move and i definitely like banning either altar or bridge over hogak because i think that hogak like it could be nice to have in the format as like a you know in quotes fair creature <laughs> so yeah i, I mean I, I still wish that Hogak were a 4-4 or something like that rather than a gigantic, <laughs> yeah. unstoppable 8-8 trample. I do think that, like, one of the big problems with the deck, yeah, was its ability to, like, present power and toughness, and then if you dealt with that, it could just combo you out of the game because you had to, like, you know, tap down, and you had to have, like, answers to so many different threats, and then they could just kill you. Uh, plus, out of this deck, banning bridge is kind of a soft ban of altar like any matchup where you took your bridges out you were taking your altars out because they were so much worse without the ability to just go off so uh the logic here makes sense i think hogak is still going to be a very playable deck it's just going to be a vengevine deck rather than uh you know any sort of combo deck yeah for sure and you know i have seen people even you know queue up a few leagues with a a bridgeless hogak deck and it and it's kind of turned more into like a turbo vengevine deck than anything else where you're just like really trying to power out early creatures yeah um, yeah i mean it, it's definitely still it quite reasonable. good you never needed altar and bridge to just like put power and toughness on the board um yeah yeah so you can still present 12 power on turn two um that's very cool <laughs> right yeah for sure and the most fun part of the games that I played were, like, Bloodgast, Carrion Feeder, you know, just, like, going off with counters and stuff and having this, like, kind of vulnerable, gigantic Carrion Feeder. And those were pretty fun, and I think those games will happen a lot more. So that's that's interesting. So yeah. we will see. I personally am happy about No Faithless Suiting ban. I know a lot of people are not. Uh, and maybe, <laughs> maybe a year from now it'll be gone. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know. You know, people are talking about how it's kind of become the brainstorm of modern where, you know, sure, the power level is off of the charts, but it's just kind of become a staple and it's not really something that they're going to mess with too much. And I, you know, I I can see that, but we're just going to always have to be careful about what we see in modern these days because Faithless Looting has the ability to, to break things pretty well. For sure. For sure. Before we get into the set review itself, want to thank our patrons. So our newest patrons, thank you so much to Ben, Josh, and Steven. And thanks a lot to Adrian for upping your pledge. We really appreciate that. One of the things that I am doing on my time on vacation is I'm going to be updating the Patreon site with all the tiers, uh, with all the rewards that we talked about uh, two episodes ago. And then we are going to work on trying to get start getting those out as soon as possible. 
So pretty exciting stuff there. Um, if you would like to become a patron, head over to patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. By the time this episode is out, it should all be updated. So uh, exciting, exciting stuff. Indeed. Uh, should we dive in? Let's do it. What's our, you know, where are we starting? All right. I think we're just going to start with the white cards. So first up is a Johnny Strength of the Pride. So we are back to Mythic Rare Planeswalkers as the majority of the Planeswalkers in a set, at least. A Johnny is two and two white for a five loyalty Planeswalker. He's got plus one. You gain life equal to the number of creatures you control plus the number of Planeswalkers you control. Minus two, you create an Ajani's Pride Mate token with Ajani's Pride Mate text. And zero, if you have at least 15 life more than your starting life total, exile Ajani's Strength of the Pride and each artifact and creature your opponents control. This feels similar in a lot of ways to Ajani Adversary of Heroes. It doesn't have the counter ability, but still has that like minus that puts like a medium body into play and like clearly synergizes with any other life gain stuff that you're trying to do. Yeah, I think in order for this card to be constructed playable, it has to be in a deck that really cares about gaining a lot of life. You know, mm-hmm. you need to have... You, I mean, you're probably playing this card alongside actual Johnny's Pride Mates, you know, and other, like, synergistic cards that really want you to be actively gaining life, and maybe there's things, like, triggering off of that. But, you know, if this plus one ability isn't doing more than just gaining life and putting you know and just gaining life then you know we found that this card is not very impressive in in kind of any normal shell right yeah you've got to already be playing like actual johnny's pride mates and and really want this yeah. effect yeah to me this planeswalker feels pretty niche and i'm not like super pumped to to try to figure out how to run it uh the the white weenie shells that we've got are already like pretty strong without having to sort of hinge on this four mana card. Like they're topping out at three yeah. mana really, and that's, you know, in your venerated Loxodon decks, and venerated Loxodon is an insanely powerful card. Like this isn't the effect that I'm I'm really looking for. Right. Yeah. The power level of just like the normal white weenie decks is is just kind of already going to be higher on average than the power level of like a life gain synergy deck and i remember like back in the early days of white weenie when we did get a johnny's pride mate into standard at first uh i definitely played a white weenie build that had those kind of life gain synergies with the johnny's pride mates and there were some like one drops that both had lifelink and right like the the channel fireball um, pro tour build yeah yeah that one and you know that deck was kind of cool but people just kind of realize that you don't really need much to make history of Benalia good. You, you just need to make yeah. play good cards. So I think that that's going to just where be where we're at. And Johnny Strength of the Pride is going to fall a little short in, in Constructed. I, I, I agree. The, the way that the white weenie decks work right now is the white drops are the enablers and you pay a cert, play a certain number of payoffs that, that make the one drops, that the one drops enable into making good. This just like adds a level of complication to the deck and probably adds like a fail rate that I'm not really not really interested in trying. So we're doing this kind of the same way as we did the last one. We're gonna check the price and see if CCR wants to buy any. These are about eight bucks. Uh, I'm not really interested in picking these up right now. Uh, if anything, it, it feels like a one or two of in a sideboard and that's pretty speculative. So I'm not really interested in this card right now. Yep. 
Next up, we've got Apostle of Purifying Light. And this is a really interesting one just because it is the first in the big cycle of color hosers with bringing back uh, protection from colors. So this is one in a white. It's a 2-1 human cleric with protection from black. And it has two to exile target card from a graveyard. So not overwhelmingly powerful, but if you are playing against a deck that is primarily based on black removal, black creatures and stuff, protection from black is an insanely powerful keyword. The exile cards from a graveyard ability is like pretty expensive and pretty niche for constructed purposes. I don't think that this is like, like graveyard hate cards are not the way you want to fight like command the dread horde for instance in standard that's just like a losing battle this to me looks okay in the right context but feels like one of the weaker of the hate cards cycle yeah i mean this card's definitely pretty strong in a vacuum you know especially if there are like black decks running around with graveyard synergy and there is command the dread horde you know that that deck still exists i think in the current standard metagame the problem with this card, though, is that it's just not a very solid way of attacking that strategy. All of their creatures that you really care about are green, so the protection from black loses a lot of equity there. So you're just kind of all of a sudden, you know, playing a two-drop that has this, like, pay two exile creature, a card from a graveyard text on it, which is, like, fine, but it's just not really worth a sideboard slot there. So while this card is really strong, and I wouldn't be surprised at all to see it see play in some future iteration of standard i think that where we're at right now it just it it's just not quite configured well enough to uh, make the cut I, I think that's probably right if i need this as a sideboard card i'll go ahead and pick it up at that point but i don't think the yeah. decks that it's good against exist quite yet so we'll we'll yeah. see how that develops and it's not really a card that's going to fluctuate a lot on price. It's not like this is going to, you know, start seeing play and go up more than a couple of <laughs> yeah, quarters or it, whatever. So. It's an uncommon hate card, yeah. I, yeah. I agree. Yeah. Next card is really interesting. So this is brought back. This is white-white for an instant. Choose up to two target permanent cards in your graveyard that were put there from the battlefield this turn. Return them to the battlefield tap. So obviously, like, the... The seed that they're planting is the idea that, like, in blue-white control or something, you could turn two, crack two fetch lands, bring them both back, and then you're at, like, five mana by turn three, um, which is certainly a powerful effect. Uh, I don't know how hard that is to set up or how much, like, life you're going to be losing total to do that. Because, like, since the lands come into play tapped, you have to crack the fetch lands then on the turn that you're going to use them both for casting brought back and for casting the spell on your third turn. So there's some hoops here. Yeah, this card is definitely one of the more, like, intriguing cards for me in the new set. Like, it has a lot of potential, but it just hasn't existed long enough for people to kind of figure that out. I'm pretty excited to see if anybody tries and succeeds to, to play this in Eternal formats. I always like seeing new archetypes arise, and I think that this ha- at least has the power level to create a new archetype if somebody, you know, figures out some synergy that's pretty particularly broken with it. So uh, definitely more of a speculative pick of, like, you know, I'm kind of crossing my fingers and hoping that somebody will figure it out, but currently I haven't seen anything that has impressed me, and um, it's not something that I'm going to be putting any time into. Yeah, this to me... Uh, as far as like picking it up goes feels like one of those cards that people get a little bit excited about hits 
bulk rare status. People forget about it for a while, and then finally, like somebody figures it out. And yeah. uh, and that you know that could happen like years from now, where they right. like print something else like a couple of years down the line that breaks his card, and people are like, "Hey, you remember brought back?" And we're all freaking out. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, I agree that it's going to be bulk for a while before that happens. The one thing that does seem kind of okay is like you could put just a couple of copies of this in blue white control. Like like you've got your oh I got a couple of fetch lands I can finally cheat on mana in my blue white deck which was completely incapable on that before and that's kind of powerful. But again the life loss is potentially significant. Uh so it is better given like prismatic vista and putting lots of basics in your deck. So that's something there. But also if it is good enough at incidentally protecting the permanents that you put into play, so if you play Teferi, you plus it, untap two lands, they go through some hoops to kill it on their turn, and then you just cast Brought Back at the end of their turn, and now you have Teferi. If that, in addition to the land thing, is good enough, then I could see this just being like, you know, a, a one or a two of in a blue-white control deck. My main problem with that is like the cards in blue-white control end up being like situational enough as it is that this may just not be like when you're drawing cards trying to lock the game up with counter magic and removal and then you draw one of these that isn't either that may just be too big of a cost to pay yeah and that would be my assumption for this kind of card in a control strategy it's just like it's too often that you're really digging for a specific answer and if you've got too many just like you know weird situational cards like this and you draw one late when you really needed something, yeah, I mean, you know, that's going to be rough. Yep, yep. So this is like two bucks now. I'll probably buy a set when they get down to like bulk rare status, but two bucks is just, it, it, it's not worth that much to me, at least. Next up is Cavalier of Dawn. This is the first in the Cavalier cycle, which are these kind of like mini Titan sort of things, biggish creatures with comes into play effects so this is two white 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 so five mana total for a four six vigilance when it enters the battlefield destroy up to one target non-land permanent its controller creates a three three colorless golem artifact creature token when cavalier of dawn dies return target artifact or enchantment card from your graveyard to your hand so i'm really reaching like trying to figure out a strategy that wants both of these effects on the same creature and it's pretty hard for me to come up with i like i guess the kill your cantripped artifact or enchantment in exchange for a three three and then you get it back when this dies to cantrip again isn't like the worst but that value game seems kind of clunky and and ponderous for the way that standard seems to be playing out right now definitely yeah and like just the fact that in order to maximize the value of this card you need to be playing it alongside enough artifacts and enchantments to be able to bring back from your graveyard you know i just really can't figure out what that deck would look like in standard i have no idea and in modern it feels like there's like a bunch of other much better things to be doing at five mana so oh yeah um, i don't think that these cavaliers have a lot of modern play space available to them as five mana creatures (laughs) yeah so yeah this one feels kind of like a miss to me i will bet that it sees some sideboard play out of specific decks that have a hard time with planeswalkers but don't have a hard time with creatures because this comes down kills a planeswalker gives them a three three but that's rendered pretty irrelevant by your four six vigilance uh Mm -hmm. and then if they don't deal with it it's really hard for them to keep further planeswalkers on the battlefield 
So that's yeah. probably a space where it sees some play. I don't see it being a mainstay. And, like, five-mana white creatures in general, like, costing triple white and being a five-mana creature, like, the, the category of decks that can fit that in is, like, pretty narrow. I, I would assume that kind of the only deck that I could see wanting this would be some sort of, like, mono-white deck. Because it feels like all the other colors, and even white, has, you know, plenty of answers for most permanents. So, I don't know. Yeah. It's true. Like, why aren't, why aren't we just playing, you, you just know, play one Ixalan's of the many O-rings? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of cool with Ixalan's bindings, because if they get rid of them, you get them back. But that's, like, a very KG game <laughs> you got to play for that. <laughs> right. Yeah, for sure. So, these are, like, two or three bucks, but they're just... It's just too near. I don't need a set of these. That's that's totally yep. fine. Yep. Next, we've got Devout Decree. This is one and a white for a sorcery. Exile target creature or planeswalker that's black or red. Scry one. So we. this is part of the second color hosing cycle. And this one, this is a good one. Yeah. I, and this card, this card's definitely very strong. And its playability is definitely going to depend on how many... Or how popular, I guess I should say, the uh, kind of this like black-red mid-range deck that I've been seeing every once in a while becomes. Exile is pretty relevant because it can exile a uh, Rekindling Phoenix, so it's a pretty clean answer to that and just kind of takes care of any of the permanents in that deck uh, pretty well. But currently, I think the popularity of that deck is relatively low. As that stands, I think that uh, a card like this isn't going to see much play in the current metagame, but you know... Uh, if things shift at all, this is definitely a very, very powerful sideboard option for, for white decks, um, if if this effect is something that they're looking for. Yeah, I mean, over the course of the next two years, I'm sure the metagame will find places where this is a powerful sideboard card. Exiling is yeah. good. When you want to get your removal count up against Mono Red and then also have answers to, like, powerful Black Planeswalkers or something like that, like, this can serve that dual role that's really valuable in a sideboard slot you get a scry out of the deal you get an exile so you know if they're casting i don't it that's not particularly relevant against command the dread horde they're gonna find a way to get value but exiling is certainly better than destroying so i'm, I'm just but these are 10 cents i don't think you'll ever sideboard more than like three but i'll pick up three because that seems it seems like a fine one to have around um yeah absolutely definitely a good card to have in your back pocket yeah. Next one is God's Willing. This is one white for an instant. Target creature you control gains protection from the color of your choice until end of turn. Scry one. Uh, this card is super, super relevant given the existence of Feather the Redeemed strategies in Standard. Yes. Yeah. Feather was ecstatic to get God's Willing. And even before anybody knew that God's Willing was going to get printed, uh, I think that like you and I even said this on the podcast before. We were like, man, this deck really needs the God's Willing, and the you know, the single white thing that gives Indestructible is just not the same. <laughs> but here we are, and here we have God's Willing, which is great. Yep. I mean, this is exactly what you want. Every time my opponent has cast turn four feather with a white mana up, I've just been like, crap, I think I lose this game. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then have to, like, test, and then if they just have the God's Willing, it's it's just so hard to, yeah. to do anything from there. So... Because you yep. have to set up, like, double removal spell on it, which with our current removal spell suite is really tough to do before turn, like, five. So, um, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. And especially because, like, not all removal spells... If it's a feather, you know, if you're on red removal, then it's really hard to, like... You have to have lava coil and then, like, two instant speed removal spells to respond to the God's Willing <laughs> with. Like, right. it's borderline yeah. impossible. So, yeah, God's Willing, really, really powerful addition. And then also, every time you cast it, you get a scry. Like, that deck scries so much, it's unreal. Yeah, um, it's digging through stack at an alarming rate. And there's even a green card that I'm sure that we'll be talking about later, the enchantment for two mana. Yeah, yeah. Gives that deck Draws a, card. a lot of card velocity. Yeah, I, I definitely... We'll, we'll talk about that more, but yeah, the Naya versions have definitely had a lot more going for them. The mana is worse for sure, but they definitely have uh, an angle that is pretty interesting. So yeah, I already have God's Willings hanging around, so I don't have to buy them, but and I don't know if I'm ever going to play Feather, but so I'm glad I get to punt that decision <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> um, next up is Leyline of Sanctity, a classic. Two white-white enchantment. If it's in your opening hand, you may begin the game with it on the battlefield. You have Hexproof. Yep, it's Leyline of Sanctity. It's not really going to ever see any play in Standard, I don't imagine. But uh, Well, I do want to no. mention uh, this is not a good sideboard card against mono red this is not how you beat them post board oh yeah no um that deck is way too creature oriented to uh be nullified by leyline of sanctity yeah plus like you're not going to beat experimental frenzy with cards like this so right don't try it yeah or try it you know maybe we're wrong but don't 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 lean on it it's not going to work out i don't think yeah Um, i agree I, I, yeah, I don't think that this is, you know, th- this being applicable in standard feels like a, a really big stretch to me, yep. unfortunately. We do have the London um, Mulligan now, which generally improves ley lines, but not for these purposes, I don't think, in standard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, thanks Agreed. for lowering the price of ley line of sanctity. This is a nice reprint. <laughs> yes. Yeah, for sure. Next, we have Planar Cleansing. Three white, 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 destroy all non-land permanents. So we have a Wrath that kills Planeswalkers now. Which is really relevant. I mean, uh, you know, Esper midrange is, you know, still going to be a very popular deck after rotation. And their whole plan pretty much is to set up a bunch of Planeswalkers and and lean on that to carry them to victory. So having a card that can kind of clean that up as well as serving as just like a Wrath effect, uh, very powerful. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. The one thing that gets me a little wondering if this card works out is, doesn't any deck that wants a 6-mana Wrath also want to be running a bunch of Planeswalkers on its own? Um, so, <laughs> so, yes, but there is one exception that I've come across so far, which is uh, the new Scapeshift decks. The most effective Planar Cleansing deck that I've seen has been in a Bant Scapeshift shell where this is kind of their go-to wrath um they can ramp into it so it's mana cost isn't quite as prohibitive and uh it just kind of cleans up everything so that when they scapeshift and uh nowadays when you scapeshift instead of making a bunch of or instead of valk triggering your opponent to death you just make a bunch of zombies (laughs) so uh um this is kind of like a cool uh addition to to that deck i think um, gotcha. But yeah, I mean, you are right. It's 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 not going to see quite as much play as like normal wrath effects would, just because you know the the planeswalker decks already have Kaya's wrath, which is cheaper, uh, and they don't want to hit their own planeswalkers, unfortunately. 
Yep. Yep. So yeah, you got to find the right shell, but this is a very powerful effect. I, I do think that, yeah, that combination of ramping and not having your own planeswalkers and mostly just wanting to buy time until you do your big thing that ends the game. Like that's a place that makes a lot of sense to me for planar cleansing, but I'm sure we will find other spots for it. It costs nothing. So, and I don't know, I'm sure I own some, but I don't know where they are or anything. So I'll just like grab a couple of these. That seems fine. Next, we've got kind of an innocuous one, but should be a big deal for a little while at least. This is Raise the Alarm, one in a white for an instant. Create two 1-1 one, one white soldier creature tokens. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of just the perfect addition to the green-white tokens list that has been around for a while already. Um, that deck was like 56 really, really good cards, and then the rest of the cards were a bit of a stretch. I think, but now with Raise the Alarm, it just really cleaned up that list and, you know, gave it another two drop that it does exactly what it wants to do, so. Um. Yeah, you get to cut a bunch of, like, the medium, like, also ran cards and just get to run four more of the card that you want the most in your god draw hands. Legion's Landing into two guys into Flip Legion's Landing is kind of the best, one of the best starts the deck can possibly have and, and really puts your opponent in a tempo bind and you're just more likely to get there now so i i think yeah. this is a huge addition to that deck yeah synergizes with a lot of the cards legion's landing you know loxodon just kind of like any of those it, it really curves out well into right like this is free on your loxodon turn and you yep. get extra plus one plus one counters so that is really good definitely have a lot of these lying around and they're common and free so i don't don't need to order them but they are going to be important <laughs> in that one deck whether that deck continues to exist, whether that deck actually exists in the hands of anyone other than Zakini, but, uh, you know, and <laughs> whether it continues sure. to exist, who knows. But definitely good in that exact deck. Next, we have Rule of Law. This is two and a white for an enchantment. Each player can't cast more than one spell each turn. This is an okay sideboard card if you're very worried about Phoenix. And it's also kind of a way to fight Experimental Frenzy decks on the Experimental Frenzy axis, which is pretty... Like, you don't have to kill the Experimental Frenzy and then hope that they don't have a second one. You actually get to, like, kind of cripple their Frenzy turns. And that's a pretty interesting spot. May not be worth a card slot in the mono-red matchup, but I think it's an interesting thing worth thinking about, at least. Yeah, I mean, it, this card does a surprising amount, I think, actually, in Standard. The Experimental Frenzy that you mentioned, Phoenix for sure, and then also Nexus of Fate has a really tough time with Rule of Law. Kind of the problem with Nexus, though, is that, uh, like any permanent hate card, they can just kill it with Blast Zone, which is a little unfortunate, <laughs> but um, but it is, you know, it's, it is another annoying permanent for, for that deck. Um, but they are relatively well equipped to deal with it and and once they're like kind of going off once they're like ready to go off you know they only really need the well i mean i guess they can't kill you without casting a second spell that's interesting yeah they they won't be able to fully combo they, they might be able to take infinite turns but they won't be able to do anything past that just because their one spell a turn will have to be <laughs> uh, right this is a fate. but they get to play a land every turn and then, like, find their blast zone or get to a point where they have enough yeah. mana that they can, no, like, Tamiyo it and stuff. So I don't think it, like, stops that from happening. And generally, like, the cards that buy you time against Nexus, like, that's not 
like this is a great card when you're trying to buy time against a deck to do your thing buying time against the nexus deck that just like loves making land drops more than anything else feels like a uh not a winning strategy <laughs> but you know if those are roles that you want to fulfill in your in your white deck then you know maybe give this a consideration but it's not it's not really high up there on on my list of cards i want to play and this is nice for the the pre-order show because i the, the doing the core sets is nice because I just have a lot of these cards, so I just don't need to worry <laughs> about it. I would get Great. several of these if this were a brand new card, but you know, yeah, we're yeah, all set. of course. <laughs> all right, next we got kind of a gimmick one. This is Safara yeah. Sky's yep. Blade, four white, 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 seven, seven, flying, lifelink. Other creatures you control with flying have indestructible, and you may pay one white mana and tap four untapped creatures you control with flying rather than pay this spell's mana cost. So it kind of does a weird venerated Loxodon impression in your, like, all-flying creature deck. <laughs> yeah, it, it kind of tries to be a venerated Loxodon. Um, you know, sometimes you're tapping the same amount of creatures slash mana for it. But, yeah, I just don't see this card being anything outside of a limited bomb. I do have a funny story about this playing against this card in Limited, where I uh, did not read the bottom line of text, which is uh, other creatures you control with flying have indestructible, and I opted to answer it by uh, one of the claustrophobias that's in the new set, so I, you know, tapped it forever, but then when I tried to block their flying creatures later, their guys didn't die, and I was <laughs> very disappointed that I had left a permanent that gave all their other creatures <laughs> indestructible in play. Yeah, I, uh, it's going to be really tough to for this card to see any play, I think, past the limit, unfortunately. Probably. And it's not a great comparison to Venerated Loxodon, because Loxodon is so flexible. You can have one or two or three or four or five creatures. Like, all of those combinations of creature numbers work just fine for putting the Loxodon into play. Um, and they yeah. can be any creature. All the good playable creatures can, can fuel Venerated Loxodon. And this really requires you to have a very specific deck. Yeah, and that specific deck just doesn't really exist right now, unfortunately. You know, nobody's really trying out all flyers, the deck, um, so. Right. Well, you know, we talked about it last, you know, I was kind of kind of high on maybe we should try a favorable wins deck last time, and they gave us some tools well, for it this set, but including a lord. Um, <laughs> I don't think fair, it's likely fair. to work. Yeah, and this, I don't know. It does this weird thing where it, like, asks you to like walk into a wrath on an early turn but then on a later turn like protects you from the wrath uh if you can get it down quickly enough so you have like this like vulnerable period i'm i could see this seeing play in like a tier two strategy but unlikely to make huge waves in the format also very bad against little teferi so yeah kind of meh for me um it feels like that deck would be one of those strategies that, like, I would be excited to try out, but it's, it would just never, you know, stack up to the other tier one strategies that we have in the format. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right. I won't. I'll probably fool around with this on Arena, but it will likely never see a paper deck that I play. <laughs> Fair. All right. So, want to move on to blue? If you want to read these cards. All right, on to blue. So first up, we have Aether Gust. So this is one of the blue instant for um, choose target red or choose target spell or permanent that's red or green its owner puts it on the top of their library top or bottom of their library yeah so, they get to choose um, so you can you can effectively counter 
a spell that's on the stack, or you can use this to remove a red or green permanent from the battlefield, And but instead of it getting destroyed or bouncing to their hand, they get the option of putting it on top or bottom of their library. Uh, this card is actually uh, really good and pretty applicable to what seems to be pretty popular right now in Standard. You can counter like a Nissa for a turn, kind of delay it, you know, make them try again on the next turn. You can even remove creatures that are problematic from the board. Uh, it's just very flexible, and I'm, I've seen it see a lot of play in standard sideboards right now. Yeah, I mean, initially, I really did not like this card because it is kind of a Punisher card. They get to choose what happens to the card. But just the tempo yeah. gain of dealing with... There's so many four and fives in these colors that it deals with for a turn, and that can be enough. Like, this... The overlap here between, like, Wilderness Reclamation and uh, Nyssa and Hydroid Crisis. I mean, I guess Hydroid Crisis isn't the best thing ever, but they probably spent a lot of mana on it. Like, a lot of this stuff just costs so much mana that being able to trade two for, like, any of it is good. I, I it's, it's definitely grown on me from my initial impression. I think this is a really important sideboard card for the format. Yeah. The other thing that I noticed kind of through testing against it is that you actually choose to put your permanent on the bottom of your library a lot more than you would expect to. So, uh, and, you know, when that's the choice, this card might as well just be Doomblade slash Counterspell, um, yep. which yep. is really strong. Um, so, yeah, and I was surprised at how often I just, like, really didn't want to draw that card the next turn. Um, <laughs> yes. and just kind of opted to uh you know put it away for later right because what if they just have another ether gust then you're yeah, then you're screwed huge <laughs> yep. yeah yeah or, or you know more likely like what if you really need to draw a land or something um, yeah and then you know if you're ever like i you can aether gust just like a like a mana dork on turn two and it effectively kills it because you know you don't really want to be casting that mana dork again the next turn um so yeah i mean this card uh, would be a lot better if it just always put it on the top rather than giving them the choice but uh yes yeah. it is pretty that tempo is just so important that that it is good enough yeah for sure um so i'm gonna go ahead and buy like three of them for 11 cents it seems good to have around yep next up we have agent of treachery so this is five blue blue for a two three human rogue creature when uh, Agent of Treachery enters the battlefield, gain control of target permanent. At the beginning of your end step, if you control three or more permanents er, you don't own, draw three cards. So this is kind of like the most recent take on a mind control effect, but kind of the cool element of this card is that you get to... Uh, you get to... It's just the ETB trigger that steals something. You don't need to keep the agent in play. You don't need to... You know, it's not attached to this 2-3 in any way. You just gain control of that permanent forever. The problem with this card, though, is that the mana cost is pretty restrictive. It's 7 mana, so I'm just not sure that its effect is quite powerful enough to justify the 7 mana casting cost. The place where I've seen people trying it the most is in, like, blue-black standard reanimator shells. Because uh, it's, like, pretty good as, like, a value reanimator engine with... There's the, like, four-mana card that makes you sacrifice a creature, and it returns a creature from your graveyard to play and one to your hand. The yeah. problem with that deck, though, is that 
it's a little bit slow in the ways that like the blue green decks are going over the top just like go over the top of that it's not a big yeah. enough effect to to beat what those decks are doing yeah i think that the standard power level is just better than reanimate a giant fatty on turn four uh it just feels like so many of the things that people are doing on turn like people are casting omniscience on turn four in this format right now so right. <laughs> it's like you know you gotta we'll, be you gotta be we'll talk about this little... we'll talk about that when we get to the green cards in this set <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah no we, there's some crazy green cards for sure yeah yeah so this like probably needs a pretty specific home one that is likely unable to keep up with the stuff that's going on right now uh i do think it's a really cool design though and this is really obviously this occupies a different design space from like sower of temptation which is like one of the few other creatures that steal a creature when it comes into play that's like a huge tempo gain that you protected and the tempo just like you can ride that to victory this costs infinite so you need to be like cheating it or doing something like that to make it work but having this confiscate effect on a body is something we really haven't quite had before so this is a novel enough effect that i'm kind of interested in it and at like 30 cents a piece i'm just gonna go ahead and buy two because why why not you know and if people are looking for like other ashen rider style cards to put into show and tell and legacy or whatever this is definitely an interesting choice all right or as a sideboard card against show and tell if they show and tell in an emrickle or an omniscience or something and you just take it Yo, yeah, no, that's that's what I'm talking about. That's I think that'll be pretty sweet. It's just like, yoink, I'll take that, and you're yeah. dead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, gotcha, that's what you were saying. Yeah, that, it, that, seems, that seems very applicable to me, I think. Ashen Rider kind of fulfilled that role for a long time because it was something that you could put in your sideboard where if you, if you had it, you could destroy whatever they put into play. Mm-hmm. Um, but That uh, seems way better, though. Yeah, yeah, now you're just mine, and any permanents, great. All right, so next up we've got uh, Cavalier of Gales. So this is the blue Cavalier. It's two blue, blue, blue for a 5-5 flyer. Uh, When Cavalier of Gales enters the battlefield, draw three cards, then put two cards from your hand on top of your library in any order. Also, uh, that's Brainstorm for those who don't want to read all that. And when Cavalier, Cavalier of Gales dies, shuffle it into its owner's library, then scry two. So a lot of stuff you're getting on rate here. Like, it's big, it flies, it gives you a card. Um, I've heard a lot of mixed reviews about this card. Uh, some people really, really like it. They are equating it to a Moldrifter that's a 5-5 flyer, which is, you know, very strong. And it's kind of cool that it, if your opponent wants to destroy it the turn that you play it, uh, you get to have a perfect brainstorm and shuffle your library right after brainstorm yeah which is nice that's cute so uh the problem is though that I, i'm kind of struggling to find a home for this card um you know it's definitely very powerful but a lot of the archetypes are just not really interested in this kind of effect um they're just like you know a, a big beefy 5-5 flyer that that brainstorms just like hasn't quite found its place yet right now in the metagame but the power level in my mind is definitely there for this card it's you know it's very strong it replaces itself in cards it gives you card selection it it does a lot so if you're looking for just like a big beefy thing to be doing this card is very strong yeah my issue with it and i think it the you know it kind of it gets there on rate like you're definitely getting five mana worth of stuff out of this Um, (laughs) yeah yeah 
But my issue is that, like, the type of value that we're getting out of our five mana plays in standard, like, this is not, this doesn't match up the way, like, you're getting on board and you're trying to, like, accrue this sort of cascading advantage on board. And I'm thinking, like, Nyssa and Cavalier of Thorns are my big callouts for that. Like, you pay five mana, you get a thing into play, and then that, like, keeps letting you just, like, put stuff into play and completely control the board. While this is giving you value, it's still just a 5-5 five, five flyer. And that's big and stuff, but that's like one permanent in play. And it's not really advancing any other game plan. Um, so I think it'll see some amount of play, and I think it'll be fine. And I think the elemental creature type is helpful. But I don't think that it's going to be playable at all times. And I think it's like a pretty narrow set of circumstances where like you really want... You know, you're playing against a red deck, so you want a five toughness flyer specifically for some reason, and this sort of right. fits the bill. Um, but it, it, I think that for five mana and standard, you want some like pretty specific stuff that this isn't doing. And those arguments that you made against this card were a lot of arguments that I made against the green Cavalier. It just kind of feels like a glorified big creature for five mana which doesn't normally have a lot of impact in standard mm -hmm. um but you know sometimes you just really want a big glorified creature <laughs> and uh, uh definitely a card to keep an eye on if you are uh brewing with any blue strategies in standard yeah yeah and we'll definitely have some words about the green one uh that that one is a complicated <laughs> yeah. card that requires a lot of discussion at this point i think yes yeah no for sure <laughs> So I'm not going to pick up any Cavalier Gales right now. Um, they're like four bucks or something, which isn't which isn't totally out of line for what this card does. But I don't really see, you know, like the blue decks where I want like a big flyer, like I'm pretty happy with Kefnet now uh, in, in Drake's, yeah. for example. Um, and I think with Cavalier, you probably got to be wanting like more elementals or something like that. So we'll, we'll see. Next up, we have Cerulean Drake. So this is one in a blue for a 1-1 one, one flyer. It has protection from red. And it says, Sacrifice Cerulean Drake, counter target spell that targets you. This card is phenomenal. And is already seeing a lot of impact in standard. It's just the perfect answer to red decks out of a blue deck. You just get this 1-1 uh, one, one flyer that you know block something forever and when they try to point lethal damage at your face you can just you know use this to sack and counter it it just kind of covers all your bases yeah i mean it it just is great the cool the especially cool thing is that the red decks have uh, a solid number of one toughness creatures so this holds back one creature with more than one toughness and all of their x1s at the same time so you're even like getting some card advantage out of it there kind yeah. of um just really makes it hard to kill you i have seen a little bit of criticism of it in that like it doesn't win the game against the red deck on its own it buys you time oh, yeah no. and then if they're playing a frenzy game like frenzy beats this card yeah no absolutely for sure as long as you're engaging in an assertive game plan as well then i, I think you're the, the this there's no better card for buying time against red and it also blocks phoenixes and crackling drakes at the same time so it's it's a versatile sideboard card as well and yeah i mean you know we're not really asking it to do much more than just buy us time uh but out of the decks that want it most namely nexus of fate that's really all you need and it certainly buys quite enough time for nexus of fate to translate into you comboing off and killing them so for sure and it really does feel like that matchup 
like decks with like kind of medium to bad matchups against red post board where you just like can draw this and you're like oh yeah i have this it just really yeah. feels way better if you just need yeah, some time sure. to execute your plan um so yeah it yep. looks like it's like 12 cents i will certainly pick up four you don't always want to board four but sometimes you do the magic number that i've seen so far has been three but it'd probably be nice to have four yeah, I mean, if you're playing a deck like Nexus, and if you get it to a place where you're like, well, the only thing I'm losing to is red, so... Oh, then I would love the fourth one, absolutely, yeah. Alright, next up we have Cloudkin Seer. Uh, this is two and a blue for a 2-1 flyer, Elemental Wizard. When Cloudkin Seer enters the battlefield, draw a card. Simple, like clearly like one of the best limited commons in the set at least, but I have seen it seeing a little play in standard, so I wanted to make sure to put it on this list. Yeah, I mean, it's an elemental, so uh, for the people who are, you know, exploring the elemental shells, uh, it was certainly one of the starting points. Um, I don't know if it made the cut in those decks. I think it's just a little underpowered for... Yeah. Uh, what those decks can be capable of. You don't really need an extra card that draws a card. You have a ton of cards that sometimes do better than draw a card. Uh, right. But And that that's the uh, thing is, like, you already have your tempo-negative card advantage engines in the deck. So you don't right. want to add more of that in. Your elementals, you're hoping, are things that, like you draw with your card advantage engine and then buy you that tempo back since you have so many cards at that point. I think this serves the opposite of that plan as well as like making you even more vulnerable to Chain Whirler. And I think that's kind of like a fundamentally flawed inclusion in the deck at that point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, you know, the, the power level is, it's like close. Um, if it was a little more power to this card, I think that it would see more play. As it stands, I think it, it falls a little bit short. Yep. 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 When your three mana play, like, either dies to shock or just, like, doesn't really affect the board in a meaningful way against aggressive decks and stuff, like, the fact that you got a card out of it often starts to not matter that much. Yeah. All right, next up we have Drawn from Dreams. So this is two blue-blue for a sorcery. Look at the top seven cards of your library, put two of them into your hand, and the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. So dig through time, but on a fixed mana cost of two blue blue. And it's a sorcery. Yeah, and it's a sorcery. So almost dig through time. It has the same text <laughs> box, but, uh, you know. Right. Uh, a little bit definitely uh, more balanced in the other ways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this card is definitely strong, and, you know, uh, the Nexus shells that exist I've seen maybe a couple of copies of this card in it just being able to dig for that piece that you really need is it's not bad but you know it being a sorcery can sometimes be a little awkward because you can't do it in your instep with uh wilderness reclamation shenanigans um uh and you know paying four mana for a, a draw spell can be a little detrimental and it's also fighting for space a lot of the time in the four mana slot with um yeah. tamio planeswalkers because, right right because if you get two activations out of tamio i mean that's <laughs> it's kind of the same thing um if you know what you're looking for so right and tamio just has that flexibility right oh yeah absolutely yeah and you know so cards cards definitely strong but i think that you know it, it won't really ever be more than just a one or a two of in um 
like a nexus strategy it's a pretty dedicated combo deck yeah i mean it digs really really deep so i'm sure that like multiple combo-y decks over time are probably going to find at least a little bit of a place for it i've been playing a lot of at least kind of aggressively oriented decks on arena a lot of phoenix just because i really enjoy playing that deck and every time my opponent starts tapping four mana on their turn four i like hold my breath and then when it's drawn from dreams i'm like okay i think we can kill them this game uh because yeah. it's just so it just does not affect the board at all uh and that that's a, a pretty big deal for a four mana card but it does dig really really deep you go up on cards if you're looking for very specific stuff and can take that tempo hit that turn because you buy it back by like doing something incredibly powerful with your combo on the next turn or two, then it can be worth it. Uh, at like a buck thirty, I'll just I'll pick up two. It's probably a good thing to have around. Yeah. So next up we have Flood of Tears. This is four blue blue for a sorcery. Return all non-land permanents to their owner's hands. If you return four or more non-token permanents you control this way, you may put a permanent card from your hand onto the battlefield. So this card is probably one of the more hotly debated cards right now. I think it's standard. People are not sure if this card is kind of the direction that they want to take their teamer elementals shell, or if they want to take it in more of just like a pure mid-rangey like version of that deck um <laughs> the the teamer flood decks that people are calling them now um typically have like one omniscience in in the deck so that you can flood pick up a bunch of stuff play omniscience and then you just win from there because you get to play a lot of elementals your elementals draw more cards and you know uh, exponentially more and more cards the more of them you have in play um and you can typically just win that turn if you can get the omniscience into play yeah, yeah. I mean, this with Omniscience, with Omniscience generally, you can just Flood of Tears like every turn for the rest of the game, and it's just impossible for your opponent to, to get back into it. So that's, yeah, it is one of the most powerful top ends here. And, you know, kind of the loop is you can Flood, put an Omniscience, play a Tamiyo, get back Flood, do it again, you know, in drawing a bunch of cards in the meantime. So... Uh, it's it's pretty cool combo card for sure in that deck. It's just unclear if it's necessary at all because the shell of teamer elementals just with like mid rangey stuff like a bunch of you know green cavaliers and nissas and omnath doesn't re- really need that much help. Um, and you know people can like substitute the flood with mass manipulations if they want to just like have some sort of go over the top engine. So, you know, we're still testing and seeing which one of those we like better, but it's, you know, this card is going to be a part of standard moving forward. Yeah, I I think so. And I think even if it doesn't end up being the best thing in that deck, it is among the coolest. And especially as long as Omniscience (laughs) isn't standard for the next three months, like people will want to play this card for that fact alone. Um, Yeah. Yeah. The big the big question in my mind is which top end of that like blue green risen reef and friends shell like wins the mirrors the most without costing you too much in other matchups because I think that's a really big deal and this is a really powerful like off switch to your opponent's stuff. I, I think between it's sort of like between this and Nexus to be like the most powerful thing going on and Nexus may like win the heads up here 
um, but this may win more matchups against like lots of planeswalkers and stuff. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter how many Narsets or Teferis or whatever they have in play. This just does it. And it, like, if they mass manipulation you, as long as you have six mana, like, you get to undo that mass manipulation pretty well with a Flood of Tears. The, one of the weird things about it, which you can exploit, but also can be pretty bad for you, is that Nissa elemental lands are still lands so this doesn't return those to their owner's hand so if you have a couple of those and that's how your flood of tearsing you don't return those lands so you keep stuff on the battlefield if your opponent got out ahead of you and is nissing and then you flood of tears like you might just take another if it left like one land and then they play a nissa like you take six and then you untap after this flood um to, you know if you didn't have an omniscience to put into play uh, so that that's an interesting like thing that doesn't work out super well for the Flood of Tears deck. But the thing it's doing is really overwhelmingly powerful and maybe the the top of the heap in that like blue green deck end game, which I think is an important thing to figure out for the new format. Yeah. And you know, definitely the thing that it has the benefit of is the potential to just end the game on the spot, which is really nice. Um or, you know, like you were saying, utilize your own Nissas to force through a bunch of damage if you've got enough lands going on. So, you know, definitely a lot of things going for it. Yeah. Looks like it's a little more than a buck. It's like a buck oh five. I'm honestly just going to go ahead and pick up a playset of these. I, I just have a feeling about this, and maybe it's a wrong feeling, but I I don't know. It, it's It's a very high power level card that does a thing it cheats on mana like that's one of the things that it does and when you cheat on mana you're really likely to be a powerful card yeah absolutely and it might be true that like later on we're all playing teamer elementals with a bunch of floods and uh you know we're just like laughing at like oh did we ever really consider (laughs) yeah uh not playing this card you know i i think that's a totally reasonable potential future that we could live in so yep and the Uh, thing you don't want to be doing with teamer elementals is when you sit down and you play the mirror and your plan is like, I'm just going to bash permanence into my opponent's permanence and try to come out on top. Like there's, you have to be on a way to win that mirror. And whether it's Nexus, whether it's Flood, whether it's Mass Manipulation, we'll see, but it could be Flood. All right, uh, next up we have uh, Mu Yanling, Sky Dancer. Uh, this is a uh, Planeswalker for one blue blue, plus two until your next turn, up to one target creature gets minus two, minus zero, and loses flying. Minus three, create a four, four blue elemental bird creature token with flying. Minus eight, you get an emblem with islands you control have tap draw card. Um, and it starts at two loyalty. So kind of your only option the turn that you play it is to plus two. Uh, you can shrink a creature and make it lose flying. And then next turn, you can minus three, bring it down to one loyalty, and you get a 4-4 uh, flying creature. Yeah, which is big, which is a really big threat for that turn. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, kind of turn turn four, 4-4 four, four flyer, uh, with the ability to, you know, plus the next turn and the turn after, potentially, you know, cash it in for another one. Uh, that's definitely a lot of flying power um, for three mana. Yeah, I- I mean, this is this is the kind of card that early on last season would have fit 
perfectly into Jeskai Planeswalkers. It protects your other Planeswalkers and then creates a body, which is like the thing that that deck was interested in doing. So for that yeah. kind of strategy, it's it's really hard to beat a card like this. This would have been really powerful. That strategy, however, is has been a little bit left by the wayside with the things that are going on <laughs> in Standard for the past season yes. and now. Yeah, true. Yeah, um, you know, Zan did queue up a couple of matches with this in Jeskai Walkers. Um, I don't remember talking to him about how it went, but he wasn't playing it for long, so it must not have gone that well. <laughs> and he really um, wants to play that deck, so... Yeah, yeah. The other place that I've seen this card potentially is in the sideboard of Mono Blue Flyers, or just like Mono Blue, you know, Tempo, Counterspells, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. As just like a, you know, a recursive threat, something that can threaten to win the game on its own. Kind of the problem that I'm seeing with this card mostly is that there's just like aren't really many good shells for it. And even though I think it is independently a pretty powerful card, it just doesn't really line up well against the format. You're either going to be playing against decks that can easily go over the top of this card, or you're playing decks that can easily go under this card and just like kill it the turn that you play it. And, you know, spending spending your three mana on a card that's just going to die as soon as you play it, or at least get, like, you know, like, say your opponent has two two-power creatures when you play this, they're just going to be able to, you know, you're going to be able to shrink one, and then the other creature's going to be able to attack it down to two, and you're kind of back where you started, you're not really gaining anything. So uh, it just doesn't really seem like it fits too well in the current standard format. But that said, it's definitely a card to remember for, you know, post-rotation, where uh, the power level of the format is greatly reduced that's exactly uh, what i do think this card standalone is is pretty powerful yeah and so then it, it massively benefits from a smaller format where the synergies aren't as omnipresent uh, a format without lanoir elves and without as focused of a mono red deck and you know that's not getting on board as quickly and heavily as these blue green decks currently are uh, although maybe they're maybe they don't lose that much in rotation so who knows um but yeah i think that this to me does seem like a card that will massively benefit from a smaller format where a standalone sort of slower three mana card like this can have more of an impact right now i think you're just gonna like play this and mostly get punched in the face around it so (laughs) yeah uh, but but i do think it is a pretty powerful individual card for some point in the future so i don't want to buy it now at ten dollars but i'm going to keep an eye on that price and, and pick it up at some point yeah, I would wait until it goes down to about $4 when mm-hmm. nobody's playing it and we're kind of in the middle of this current standard. Um, but I definitely expect it to go back up a little bit after that. So if you remember to pick this up um, kind of like midway through this current standard format, I think that would be the ideal time to do so. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, it also suffers from existing in a format where you already have to be ready to kill three mana planeswalkers you know have yeah, rabble masters right. in your sideboard and things like that so yeah for sure but yeah i'll pick it up later um so next up we've got scholar of the ages so this is a another seven mana uh blue creature <laughs> it's a five blue blue for a three three human wizard when Scholar of the Ages enters the battlefield, return up to two target instant and or sorcery cards from your graveyard to your hand. Um, so kind of like a, uh, a, a a bigger version of, you know, some of our favorite old uh, blue creatures that like to uh, pick up some 
uh, yeah, of course that staples some some is it Kronark type creatures, salvager of secrets, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so this card is, you know, it's interesting because I think it's the first kind of blue creature that's picked up multiple instants or sorceries from your graveyard. At least I don't remember seeing anyone before that. But, you know, once again, it's pretty restrictive on the casting cost to have it see a lot of play and constructed, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, this sort of fits into that, like, weird blue-black, like, value reanimator shell where you, like, get back your reanimation spell and then something else, so you're just kind of up cards. But Standard really punishes that kind of dirtling around right now. Like, you can't do that in a matchup where your opponent's like, here's a Nissa, and then here's my giant <laughs> spell I'm casting off of Nissa. <laughs> so right. yeah. Yeah, I and I do want to point out, uh, power level of Standard right now is through the roof. It's um, unreal. Yeah, the the things that we're doing right now are, are pretty crazy. Like, people are winning on turn four with relative consistency, you know, either that being just, like, you know, comboing off on turn five Nexus or, uh, you know, just, like, the aggro decks can get you dead by turn four or five Goldfish pretty easily. Yeah, just, like, the power level of what people are doing right now is very, very high. So, you know, cards like this, while neat, are just not going to survive in, in this cutthroat standard. Yep, yep, I think that is pretty correct i'm not interested on like value creatures that are not heavily adding to the board even if i'm cheating them out like this isn't really doing the thing at 10 cents i am going to pick up a couple though because i would really like maybe for that post rotation blue black deck to be a thing uh i'm not like holding my breath for sure so fair enough um but it does a thing that like no other card has done which is enough of a reason to like yeah and that's a couple hanging around absolutely yeah Next up, we have Spectral Sailor. So this is a single blue for a 1-1 Flash Flyer, Spirit Pirate. And it has an activated ability, three and a blue, to draw a card. If Shifting Ceratops hadn't been printed, I would feel like this set is just giving so much to Mono Blue. But the like <laughs> existence of that like borderline unbeatable card really like yeah. makes me not, not hype for Mono Blue at all. <laughs> Yeah, and that's kind of tough. Uh, yeah, I mean, this card fits perfectly into Mono Blue. It does it does everything that that deck wants. It's a one mana one one flyer, which is you know perfect to slap a Curious Obsession on, um, and it even has Flash. So if you're casting them later in the game, you can like you know pick your spot and choose to flash it in on like an ideal time in your curve, and you know it allows you to hold up your counter spells, which is really crucial. Uh, this was pretty immediately one of my favorite cards that I saw in uh, from a limited standpoint. I think I opened this <laughs> like in my first sealed, and I was like, "Oh yeah, four mana draw card, <laughs> let's go." Yes, because um, you know it, it's a little tempting to like you know flash it out in the early turns to get in some damage, but if you actually just like save it for like after your opponent's used all of their removal spells, and then you know later in the game you can just go, "All right, you know, flash this in, draw a card, untap, draw another card." It's just so much work. Playability in standard right now is pretty contingent on Mono Blue's playability. Um, I know people are trying to make that deck work again. I think that M- Mono Blue, I think, is one of those decks that kind of got a little passed up on in power level, unfortunately. Um, yeah, the existence of Teferi as well is, is is a big deal. Yeah, Teferi did a lot to cripple Mono Blue. And then just like the ramp strategies right now are so fast that if the mono the mono blue deck it's a it's a purely tempo based deck right so if it ever falls behind in tempo and if if it ever falls behind on the board it has a really really hard time coming back from that 
and the ramp decks right now just are so strong at just like dumping things onto the board and you know accelerating their mana really really fast so unless the mono blue deck has kind of like a perfect curve of countering everything that matters really quickly they can just kind of fall behind a little bit too fast yeah i I think that's mostly where it's at just like the stuff that's going on is too powerful i do think that this potentially finds a place at some point uh in the format as like a sideboard juke card and not even necessarily a juke but like a thing that you can get down early in like a control matchup that like sort of picks at planeswalkers and then threatens to draw cards on end steps and stuff the end step drawing cards is so much weaker and it's a fairy format though and so i think it, it definitely loses out some there but uh i i think that just like the cost is so low and it just has so many things going for it that flash flying and that activated ability together um i do think this card overall just like is a pretty good magic card at some point the format is probably into it and at a quarter a piece this is exactly the kind of card that i the exactly the kind of card like uncommon like kind of weirdo card that i don't want to have to find when i need several for my sideboard so i'll just pick up a set and not have to worry about it in the future all right we are moving on through starting with black we've got blood for bones so this is that reanimation spell i was talking about this is three and a black for a sorcery as an additional cost to cast this spell sacrifice a creature Return a creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield, then return another creature card from your graveyard to your hand. Um, so this is a little weird because reanimation spell, four mana, and requires setup. You need to keep like a stitcher supplier or some value guy of some sort into in play, um, which is like kind of a big ask, but it does a couple of things. And if you're working with these value guys, it like lets you recycle them and also cheat something big into play, ideally. So this is definitely an interesting card that, that I, you know, could lead to some sort of reanimation deck somewhere down the line, though likely the value sort of build needs a more forgiving format than the standard we're currently in. Yeah, I mean, you know, in order for that deck, I think, to exist, it would have to have a lot of other things that really kind of slowed the game down a little bit and just, like, made this recursive engine that it's trying to to create like powerful in some way but kind of the problem with that is that it goes against the normal philosophy behind reanimation cards which is typically for cheating things out you want that thing that you're cheating out to end the game earlier and there just like aren't really any huge creatures that exist right now that i think can end the game faster than ramping to them and casting them. better tuned standard decks right and and they all sort of by the time you reanimate something big they might have just cast a 10 10 hydroid crisis and then your guy just <laughs> right. like looks yeah. pathetic next to it so yeah I, I do think that the power level of these ramp decks is probably pushing the concept of a reanimator deck out of standard but i do think this card is really cool Oh, I totally agree. And it's kind of it's kind of the first time we've seen a reanimation card give us more value than just putting a creature on the mm-hmm. board. You know, and it makes sense because this has the additional cost of sacrificing a creature, which is, you know, a little annoying. But being able to get a creature back from your graveyard into your hand and put something directly onto play can be pretty strong. I guess my main the the main thing killing this for me is that so Stitcher Supplier is in M nineteen. 
So by the yeah. time that some of the dangerous stuff rotates out and we get a nice small format where maybe you could try to reanimate, uh, then you don't have Stitcher Supplier anymore. And this is a card that clearly is relying on the existence of Stitcher Supplier to be doing its thing. Uh, and your deck probably yeah. loses a lot of its consistency and stuff without that card. Odds are this just never gets there, I think, unless we get some pretty neat stuff printed in upcoming sets. Yeah, I if I was a betting man, I would agree with you. So probably not going to bother with this one, um, even if, even though it is, of course, cheap as an uncommon. Uh, this next one is Cavalier of Night. Two black, black, black for a 4-5 elemental knight with lifelink. When it enters the battlefield, you may sacrifice another creature. When you do, destroy target creature and opponent controls. When Cavalier of Night dies, return target creature card with converted mana cost three or less from your graveyard to the battlefield. So this card is certainly cool, and I've seen it see some amount of play in Command the Dreadhorde shells. You can use it to like reanimate a Wild Growth Walker or a Jaylight Ranger later in the game. You've got, like, you know, random Merfolk Branch Walkers and Jaylight Rangers that you don't mind sacrificing to kill your opponent's creatures. And, you know, just like a 4-5 lifelink is, is beefy, and lifelink can be really nice against... Like, this card is phenomenal against against Mono Red, so... Yeah, um, yeah, and it also, like, kills them back. Like, you get to start attacking with it. Uh, you know, it's it's not a hugely... It's not a super fast clock, but at least you can... It can be a part of turning the corner. And the lifelink can also be really relevant for, you know, just, like, buffering your life total for Command the Dreadhorde. So, you know, a lot of elements of this card work really well with that deck, and... People are definitely trying it, and it seems like it makes sense to me. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it's super powerful, and it definitely needs to be in a deck with smaller creatures, and loves to have those be like kind of value guys that then it's happy to get back into play for like you know if you have some sort of one one with a comes into play ability, and then this dies and brings it back, and then you get the comes into play ability again, whether that's explore or draw a card or something like that then you are getting some value off of here, uh, but probably not really relevant outside of the matchups where that 4-5 lifelink body is pretty important. But, you know, as like a sideboard card against red decks, I think this is really powerful in those kinds of builds. I, I don't think this is going to be like a format-defining card or anything, but at a, as a $5 mythic that could easily find a place in decks, like I'm super comfortable buying two of these and having them on hand for when you need them in your sideboard. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, next up, we got a nice basic one. This is Disfigure. One black, instant, target creature gets minus two, minus two until end of turn. Disfigure's great. It's a single black instant speed removal spell for kind of the cheaper creatures. And there are plenty of creatures that you want to be disfiguring right now. There's, you know, Mono Red has plenty of creatures that you want to hit on turn one. Vampires has plenty of creatures that you want to hit early. Right, this lets you have an answer to a Danto Vanguard that, like, isn't a bad removal spell that you actively want against other decks so yes yeah uh, absolutely and and we've lived too long like so many times i'm playing against like esper or something and i know that i'm gonna get to untap with my lenor elves and it's just like such a <laughs> yeah. good feeling having no fatal push in the format and so giving the one mana good removal spell to those black base control decks you know this is a really big deal yeah, and, you know, any of the... This hits all of the mana dorks. Uh, well, I guess there are two mana dorks that you can't hit. Both the Paradise Druid and the new Elemental 03 kind of dodge this guy. But, you know, it, if you're playing Elementals, you're going to have plenty of targets for 
disfigure that are really good. I mean, it's just so important to keep uh, Risen Reefs off the battlefield. So. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, and it's it's pretty important to be able to kill them at like a a big enough tempo advantage to make up for the fact that you're like down a card and maybe they got a land off of it. Killing Risen Reef for one mana is a lot better than killing it for two mana. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so this card's great. If you're playing a black strategy, I highly recommend some some number of these in your deck. Surprisingly enough, I haven't seen uh, much disfigures lately, but I think that it's kind of just a product of people not really completely like knowing everything they have access to and or like not really wanting to change their like you know already set in stone esper shells as much um but i think this card's really important to uh to have access to in your 75 if you're if you're playing black yep i agree i would buy a bunch if i didn't just already have disfigures hanging around yeah for sure <laughs> next we've got dread presence this is a new one three and a black for a three three nightmare whenever a swamp enters the battlefield under your control choose one you draw a card and you lose one life or dread presence deals two damage to any target and you gain two life have you seen this at all? It, it seems like a really high power level if you get to keep it in play for any amount of time, but I don't know that it works. The one deck that I've seen people trying it out in the most is actually a black-green scapeshift deck, where okay. the combo is Dread Presence plus scapeshift for 10 swamps to kill your opponent. <laughs> sure. That deck is probably not good the the deck building restrictions that are kind of immediately imposed are like you need like 15 swamps in your deck or something ridiculous yeah and then you don't get to use fields of the dead as your your scapeshift thing which is just intrinsically quite good because it requires so little setup which is the point right. of scapeshift really yeah yeah exactly you want your scapeshift to just be like on its own and you know you have enough lands to be able to be a kill you don't want to have to combo it with another, like, you know, creature that could get killed in response or something. So, uh, you know, that's where I've seen people trying it out. And it's been, I think, fine there. But the card on its own is very powerful. I mean, you know, if you if there was, like, a mono-black mid-range strategy, I think that they would definitely want access to this card. The the mythical mono-black mid-range deck that is playable. Oh, yeah, we always talk about it, but, uh, you know, it's just, it just never, never quite comes together. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I don't think that this card is going to see much play. Um, people are going to try it out because it looks sweet, but I just don't think that it's ever going to quite make it, unfortunately. Yeah, it's definitely sweet, and I love that it's two modes like cover the majority of matchups that you'll be playing against you know if they're yeah. if they're hitting you then use these little like drain lifes if they are trying to control the game you get a couple of cards out of it no good no real good mode for when they're ramping you out of the game though and that's a pretty important place to be for yeah. an awkward card like this that you've kind of built your deck around um yeah. so certainly right now i think this card doesn't stand up to some of the stuff that's happening ultimately like this is a five drop kind of that is a little awkward to build your deck around and stuff. And I think ultimately the costs end up being too high here. So probably not going to pick these up until somebody like really convinces me that this card is, has got what it takes. Yep. I agree with that. Next up, 
is Embodiment of Agonies. This is one black black for a 0-0 flying death touch. It enters the battlefield with a plus one plus one counter on it for each different mana cost among non-land cards in your graveyard. For example, two and a black and one black black are different mana costs. This is kind of the one thing that has made me want to take a second look at that like blue-black reanimator concept, because if you're doing stuff with Stitcher Supplier, or even if you're like green-black or something and using like Glowspore Shamans and stuff too, um, this can get really big like pretty early in the game. It's surprising just like how different the mana costs are, and I've seen like pretty big embodiments of agonies out of decks that are doing graveyardy stuff. Yeah, I, I, this card definitely was one of the cards that impressed me a lot in my limited experience with it, where I was just like, whoa, you know, my opponent casts this card and it is massive and I'm going to die to it, you know, so so that's always been interesting. But yeah, I, I feel like this is one of those classic cards where it on its own is super, super powerful, but it requires a deck that is not going to be powerful just kind of in, intrinsically there just like aren't enough other things to make that kind of shell good enough right now in my mind so while i think this card is really really strong on its own and like it, it's it's requirement it's like deck building requirement just kind of limits it a bit too much for me to be super excited about it yeah i i completely believe that I agree that the innate power level of the card is just really high, and the fact that it has flying and death touch means that even if like you aren't quite setting it up perfectly, it probably will have... Uh, either you're in a slower matchup where you can wait on it a little bit, or you can get it down and trade for something at least. It may not have a place in the format right now, but I think that that power level is quite high. So at a buck 20, I think any deck that plays this is certainly going to play four. So I'm going to pick up a set speculatively, but I th I have a feeling I'll be happy I have them around. I, I could be off on this. Um, I agree that like right now it doesn't seem like the time for them. Yeah, it definitely a card to revisit, I think, post-rotation in my mind. Next, we've got a card that it seems like the time for it is right now. This is Knight of the <laughs> Ebon oh, Legion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is black for a 1-2 Vampire Knight. Two and a black, it gets plus three, plus three, and gains death touch until end of turn. And at the beginning of your end step, if a player lost four or more life this turn, put a plus one, plus one counter on Knight of the Evan Legion. So Vampire's deck that kind of got pushed in this last set, and now it's got a huge upgrade in the one-drop department. We don't have to play, yes. like, you know, Vicious <laughs> Conquistador or whatever anymore. This is way better than that. Yeah, one drops, so black one drops, in my mind, uh, I, f I feel cursed, because every time they print a new, like, exciting black one drop that's a rare, it always ends up falling a little bit short, and, like, you know, maybe it is powerful enough, but, like, the rest of the deck isn't. This card delivered, and the more I got to, when I first read this card, I was like, wow, this card's really, really good, and the more I played with it, the better it became in my mind, so, um... <laughs> This card's pretty crazy. The amount of things that you can do to trigger its second ability consistently starting from turn two is pretty crazy. Um, if you play it alongside Adanto Vanguard, uh, a very common curve that I've done with vampires is turn one knight of the Ebon Legion, turn two Adanto Vanguard, just pay for life, put a counter on my knight. <laughs> uh, because it doesn't, you, you don't need, 
it doesn't need your opponent to lose the life. You can, you know, it says if any player lost four or more life this turn, you can put a counter on it. Um, right. And it is just your so, turn, so don't don't pay life on their turn trying to trigger it. But that that yes. is really powerful yeah, yeah. for a one drop. Yeah. Um, yeah. This one drop gets really really big. Like you know, the number of times it's just been like a four or five on like turn five or whatever is is pretty crazy. And uh, the activated ability also is hugely relevant. I I played a game against pretty old school Gruul with um, Nullhide Feroxes, and I was like, wow, these Nullhide Feroxes are huge. I'm never going to be able to fight through this. But I was just able to like turn four, play a knight, block their Nullhide Ferox, activate it. It gets Death Touch. We trade. You know, play another knight, block their other Nullhide Ferox, activate it. <laughs> you know, just being able to trade up um really well just just able to have a huge impact and you know sometimes it just like opens things up where you can attack your one two knight of the ebon legion into their two two or whatever on turn three and just like have the three mana they can't block and then you can spend your mana on something else um yeah so just that like sense. the number of play patterns that work out really really well for this card are um very strong so the question then is how good is vampires because this is clearly a card that I mean, I, I guess technically, if there's just some black-based aggressive deck, this could be an okay one-drop in that deck, but it really benefits from having a Danto Vanguard in the same deck as it. And obviously other vampire synergies. No, for sure. Uh, and vampires, I think, is tier one or very, very close to tier one. It's The deck is, I think, proven to be very, very strong. Uh, it goldfishes very, very quickly. Um, and not only does it have very fast aggressive starts... It's late game capabilities with the five mana vampire that draws cards equal to the number of vampires, equal to the number of vampires you have, just gives you a pretty enormous late game power. And some of your nut draws are just, you know, nobody can keep up with it. Not even the ramp decks are keeping up with that. Where, you know, if you can get a, like, play, like, vampire into a lord or two vampires and then curve that into Soren minus play your you know four four that draws you a bunch of cards and then dump your hand again the next turn it, it can get really out of control and i think the power level is is definitely there so i would i would suspect that vampires is one of the more reasonably represented archetypes in worcester this weekend yeah and that's the thing is to me seeing it play out and stuff i i don't have like a great specific explanation for this but to me, it feels like a week one deck. Like, it'll do just fine week yeah. one, and then it'll get pushed out by more refined decks. Because there's not, like, a ton of room to do stuff other than put all the vamp all the decent vampires into a deck together. And, you know, the more tuned decks are, and the more they are, like, sideboarding specific cards for the vampires matchup and stuff, it won't have much room to adjust. So I guess I do have specific reasons why I think vampires is likely to be a week one deck. And so I think it will be probably pretty powerful week one, but I am not super interested in buying the cards for the vampire deck since I'm not even going to be at Worcester. So, um, Fair you know, that's yeah. kind of like personal reasoning. Uh, you know, this card's like four bucks now. It's probably worth four bucks at this moment, uh, but I think within a couple of weeks, this will be a very cheap card uh, and probably not one that you need access to. Um, could Could easily be wrong. Vampires could end up being like, uh, stand out in the format but even then 
it rotates out of the format in the fall. So if you're trying to be like pretty careful about what you spend your money on, I don't think buying into <laughs> vampires right now is a particularly great option. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense for sure. And I totally agree with vampires being a week one deck. It's like the go-to aggro deck right now. I think it's actually reasonably favored against mono red, which is really nice. Interesting. Is that heavily because of Soren's lifelink and stuff? Yes, yes it is. It's it's because Soren can just, you know, uh, one man mono red on its own. Yeah, and we'll get to Soren, I'm sure, in a little bit. And, and that card is also crazy good, but... But yeah, I, and you know, and just like general philosophy for week one standard is decks are going to be less tuned. So aggressive decks get an edge there. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And then aggressive decks that like inherently can don't just fold to like a handful of removal spells. Like, you know, this vampire's deck is built around a planeswalker and a card advantage engine. So just having a lot of doom blades doesn't necessarily beat this deck. So that's a good formula for a week one standard deck, um, but yeah. may not be as resilient going forward, but we'll see. Next, we've got Legion's End. This is super interesting removal spell. One in a black sorcery, exile target creature and opponent controls with converted mana cost two or less and all other creatures that player controls with the same name as that creature. Then that player reveals their hand and exiles all cards with that name from their hand and graveyard. Hits tokens hits Hydroid Krasis and the Krasis that they drew off of it and we're going to follow it up with. (laughs) Uh, Hits, you know, Adanto Vanguard, like, you know, trades at, like, kind of mana parity with all of the two drops in the format, but you're not blowing out most aggro decks with it. Um, But this does feel, like, pretty flexible in that there are a bunch of specific spots where it's kind of the card that you want. Um, I don't know how much you've seen it testing in the last couple of days. A reasonable amount, but less and less as the format goes on. It's just really hard to justify a card like this when you could be playing slightly more flexible cards that are instant speed. Yeah, that sorcery speed really kills it for me. Sorcery speed is is definitely a a real bummer. Um, It it was really close to being the Bile Blight of this format, but I just don't think that it quite made it there. Um, Uh... Yeah, the sorcery speed, the, you know, CMC two or less. There are a lot of really good CMC two or less things that you want to be hitting. So it has a reasonable amount of targets. But I just think that the flexibility that the other cards have to offer kind of outweigh the upsides for this card for me. And if it doesn't feel particularly good against the ramp decks, like it kills ramp creatures and hydroid crisis... And, oh, if you're playing Nyssa and you believe they might have Legion's End, you do need to be very careful not to animate the same named land <laughs> yeah. twice, because that's, right. that's not, pretty Not brutal. all of your forests, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I just think that, you know, this people were playing this initially, but I think that was mostly due to, like, you know, ooh, shiny new stuff syndrome, more than it was like, this is actually a, a good replacement. I think that, I think it's just better to play the more flexible two-mana removal spells that exist. How about as a sideboard option? Do you think it has any play there, or is it just too low impact? I think it's just too low impact. Okay. Well, you know what? I'll trust you. I was going to go ahead and just pick up a couple of these, but yeah, that's that's pretty convincing. I, I think I just won't bother. Kind of sad because I think it's it's a pretty cool card, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not super high on it, and I've just noticed a very significant trend down on... It, earlier on in the format when I was testing, like, you know, everybody, all of the black decks had a bunch of them, and that started happening less and less. And I think that's just because people have realized, like, oh, let's just, 
just put our cast downs and you know we'll take our one for ones and it being an instant like if you're on the play and you're trying to kill your opponent's turn two mana dork whatever it may be it would feel really bad to have a sorcerer in your hand in that in that context so yeah no that's that's a really good point you just can't kill their their leafkin or whatever at end of turn i i I really do think yeah being a sorcery just kind of kills this card yeah yeah if it was an instant i would be all about it but it's just not oh well uh, next up, we have one that is certainly playable in at least one format. This is Leyline <laughs> of the Void. Uh, two black black enchantment. If it's in your opening hand, you can start the game with it on the battlefield. If a card would be put into an opponent's graveyard from anywhere, exile it instead. So definitely appreciate this reprint. Yep. Not one that I'm like super excited about in standard, though, of course. No, I, I think that it will see more play in standard than in, than is deserved. Uh, yes. People are going to like try it as a sideboard option against like command the dread horde decks mm-hmm. and then they're gonna die to a bunch of hydroid crises so uh, yeah yeah not really that deck the just angle. plays like a fair planeswalker based sultai game one one thing is at least it does shut down their tamios pretty hard so that's something yeah kind of i mean they can still plus <laughs> yeah i guess they can so. still get cards off of it so it doesn't really do that much it yeah it's and the problem is, like, you bring in cards like this against Command the Dreadhorde, and the idea is, like, I'm going to extend this game out because they can't just kill me with Command the Dreadhorde. And then you, like, leave yourself drawing multiples of this card against their just, like, here are some right. Jade Light Rangers and Branch Walkers, and they're just going to outvalue you, and you're going to die. So, not not good in standard. Reprinted just in time for, <laughs> for Bridge for to be banned. banned. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> timing is weird, but still a good reprint. I've got mine. I'll pick these up. They're like 16 bucks right now. I wonder if they will go down. I want because it's a rare. The market's gonna get kind of flooded with them. I wonder if it'll go down to around like 12 bucks or so. And that seems like a good time to just pick up a whole bunch. Hashtag MTG Finance. Uh, it'll be it'll be expensive <laughs> yeah. again. Yeah, I if you know if if we were doing it like stocks, I would definitely set like a warning bell for if this card mm-hmm. ever dipped below probably like $13 I would like okay. want to buy a lot of them definitely a good pickup right now if you don't have any already yeah because it's good right now and like even with the the bridge ban like there are decks that certainly want leyline as their graveyard hate and there will be forever in modern oh yeah yeah and you know you like leyline of the void is just never not going to be uh, a relevant card forever it's just always going to be significant at some point uh, next up, we've got Noxious Grasp, one and a black, instant, destroy target creature or planeswalker that's green or white, you gain one life. This card is an instant, unlike, I think, <laughs> the white color hoser, and that is, yeah. that's gigantic, holy cow. Noxious Grasp is very strong. It's been at least a three of in all of the black decks that I've seen uh, in the sideboard. It's just super relevant against these ramp strategies, um, and even, you know, it's good against vampires, it's good against, you know, Esper, you can use it to kill Teferis, uh, it just it, it just has so, so many applications that are very, very strong. Uh, the color spread of green and white and hitting both creatures and planeswalkers yeah, is It just, just covers so many permanents. And this is yeah. a card that you can kill their turn two mana dork, or you can kill their Nissa with it, and that's... yes that's a big overlap it's huge it's so huge it's been a three of in all of my vampire sideboards it's you know i'm sure it's at least a three of and and many more like other like esper i'm sure wants at least a couple of copies of this 
uh, cart's phenomenal. Like, I think if we just, like, listed out all of the super relevant uh, standard staples that it kills right now, it would be, it'd be pretty pretty overwhelming. So, uh, this card's great. I highly recommend you play it. So... Yep, looks like it's like 14 cents. I have no problem with picking up a playset of that. You know, it may be mostly a three of, but every once in a while, like basically every deck against like mono red or mono blue, like this is a fine card to have in your deck. So I'm completely yeah. okay with it. Next up, we have a much more complicated one to evaluate. This is <laughs> Rotting Regisaur, two and a black, seven, six zombie dinosaur at the beginning of your upkeep, discard a card. So I've seen a little bit of this card C play, not a ton. It's been pretty hit or miss on whether or not it's been effective. Sometimes it easily won the game <laughs> on turn, you know, six or whatever. Uh, other times it just kind of like, you know, made the player discard a bunch of their cards and then they got stuck on like three mana and, you know, eventually it died and, and then they were just way far behind in the game. So pretty tough to evaluate in a lot of senses and i just i'm not not really seeing a deck that just like really really wants this card right now yeah i had somebody play it against me when i was on drake's which very specifically cannot kill a six toughness creature like this and it like <laughs> yeah, yeah. came very close to soloing me like the rest of their deck was I, I think pretty misbuilt and and not really functioning and not really doing anything i cared about but this seven six like took everything i had to kill it and then i had to just like <laughs> kill them with the dregs of my remaining stuff like i think i had to like i had to block it with a creature and then aim a shock at a lightning strike at it because that is how my hand lined up against it and you know they they had at least spent a couple of cards on it at that point because i had to take like two hits but yeah so it's it's definitely there is something here it's so big and I don't know if that means that it's a good juke strategy post-board, maybe in modern. Like, you know, these the new Vengevine decks, because I think they're, we can go back to calling them Vengevine decks rather than Hogak decks. Uh, yeah. They are going to be much more, much less resilient against Graveyard Hate. And so then if they can just bring in this big dumb 7-6 that nobody can deal with in modern without the card Path to Exile, that might be a totally valid sideboard strategy. So I, I think yeah. that this card probably is big enough and dumb enough to see some play. No, absolutely. And I think that I think that you're right in that the probably the best application for this card is like as a sideboard juke strategy in some kind of uh you know, either graveyard or like combo y strategy where you expect your opponent to really warp their deck in a way that is targeted towards, you know, answering things that aren't just a simple old seven six for three mana <laughs> so yeah i mean if you're and even in standard even in standard any deck that's relying on red removal has a really hard time with a card like this yeah no absolutely it's just big large uh it's a dinosaur um it is a, so, definitely a dinosaur you know definitely not sold on it in standard but i you know i would definitely love to see uh people try it as a as a sideboard option in, in yeah internal formats Looks like they're about 350 right now. I I think this remains to be seen a little bit. I'll pick them up when I need them if I'm playing Vengevine and want to put them in my sideboard or whatever. Uh, yeah. But I, I remain to be like convinced on it, so I'm not going to drop like you know ten or ten or fourteen dollars on this right now. And this card will never be more than four dollars, just kind of no matter what. So I, I think that's I right. Don't worry about it too much. Next card. 
is Soren, Imperious Bloodlord. So tell me, tell me about this card in Vampires. Soren is the reason that Vampires is a deck. Um, I would say <laughs> it just does so much. It bumps your creatures. It gives them lifelink and death touch, so they can attack through whatever. It uh, it allows you to turn some of your cheaper vampires into removal spells, which is incredible. Um, and that ability is even just a plus, so you can kind of do it no matter what, which is which is awesome. Um, right. Also gives like, reach to your black deck, your black aggro deck, and that's yeah, that's something that those decks struggle to get. Really, really, you know, important that you said that because the number of times that you end up winning with just like a big attack followed up by a Soren plus sack my guy. You'd you would be amazed at how many times you just have lethal from spots that you would ordinarily have no business winning the game from. Soren Soren is pretty pretty incredible in this deck. And it also gives you this other angle of, you know, you're just playing four Sorens in your deck and you're also playing a decent number of uh four and five mana vampires. There's the I'm blanking on the name of both of them, but there's the three, four champion of dusk and vampire sanctum seeker. Yeah. Yeah. Sanctum seeker and champion of the dusk and being able to just like curve out vampires on turns one and two, and then Soren into champion of the dusk. You just never lose those games. It's just so much power and value that you get out of that sequence. Um, and your opponent is always so far on the back foot. Like you're, it's like a, it's a turn three, four, four creature that drew you like th- th- three to four cards. <laughs> yes. So, uh, it's pretty crazy. Soren also really mucks up like racing math. Like I, mm-hmm. one of the first time I played against vampires, I, I made a mistake of like counting up the burn spells in my hand and thinking like, okay, I'll pretty much get there. I attack this turn. I've got my burn spells in hand. and can pump this crackling trick just a little more on my next turn. I think I'll get there. Soren comes down, gives a guy lifelink and a plus one, plus one counter and just completely destroys that racing math. And I wasn't, yeah. you know, I hadn't played against vampires yet. Wasn't thinking about how Soren could have that effect on the game. And now, you know, it forces your opponent to play a more defensive game if they, like, were playing a deck that has the ability to to race you. Now they kind of, that's not on the table as much. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so Soren's phenomenal. It's pretty much the reason that uh, Vampires is as good as it is right now. You know, it's it's just going to be a staple for as long as that deck is, is a thing. So three months exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, this sure. definitely wins the like Starfield of Nyx award for the set. I think, um, although there's several <laughs> several contenders yeah. for that particular award, this core set. Um, right, and it's kind of a bummer too because, well, I don't know if it's a bummer or if it's like a you know oh finally kind of deal. But normally when they print planeswalkers that are super focused on or super limited in what deck they can be in like the like the zombie liliana that we had forever like that kind of card typically just like never pans out because either the deck isn't strong enough on its own or like the card itself just like doesn't quite get there in terms of power level but i think that vampires got there with soren on both of those axes this time vampires is very strong and soren's power level is very very strong on its own Yep. And it definitely means that this is a no pickup for me at $15. You know, it's good right now, but as I said, like Vampires does kind of feel like a week one deck. And if nothing else, like it's just not going to be playable three months from now. So this is a pretty poor 
collection investment card. I, obviously, I'm going to be eating my words if, like at a team tournament or something a couple weeks down the line. I'm like, well, got to play vampires, got to buy these $25 Sorens. But that's a specific enough scenario that I think that it's just like picking up this card would be a very silly thing for me to do. Yep. I totally agree. But if you're um, at all interested in playing vampires in the next three months, you're going to need some Sorens. <laughs> yep, it's, it, it, it is absolutely the reason that the deck is good. That that I do yeah. not question at all. All right, well, that's it for the black cards. Uh, shall we move on to the red? First card we've got for red is the uh, Cavalier of Flame. So this is two red, red, red for a 6-5 Elemental Knight. It has... One and a red, creatures you control get plus one, plus O, and gain haste until end of turn. Uh, when Cavalier of Flame enters the battlefield, discard any number of cards, then draw that many cards. When Cavalier of Flame dies, it deals X damage to each opponent and each Planeswalker they control, where X is the number of land cards in your graveyard. This is a lot of so, text. Holy crap. Kind of a wonky one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of cool because it... it has fire breathing fire breathing for your whole team and it gives all of your creatures haste if you activate it so pretty powerful on like turns after you cast the cavalier where you know you can if you have two mana left over all of the creatures that you play the following turn can get haste and, and pumped in power and you know the whole squad can get in so that's pretty nice and then you know just like the the rummage ability is kind of cool where you just discard the clunkers in your hand or whatever and uh, get some new ones. It uh, this card definitely seems very powerful, but uh, it just doesn't really have a home right now in standard. Yeah, and I have a hard time seeing exactly where it shows up. Like I don't know if it wants to be in some sort of big red shell, which typically is probably more successful in a smaller format. Yeah. It is just like a lot of body and text for its mana cost and then i don't know how many land cards you're getting in the graveyard besides the one or two you discard to its ability when it enters the battlefield i don't know how relevant that leaves playability is there's just a lot i don't know about this card i guess and it's hard to figure yeah. it out because there's no there's no shell for it at this moment so it's really hard to predict like how this card functions in the future yeah for sure and i think that'll definitely be a card that we will have to revisit post rotation because I totally agree. I think that it is going to be uh, more powerful uh, in kind of smaller field because it it has its own kind of inherent power level on it, you know, in a vacuum. But I, I just don't think that that lines up very well against the other really, really strong cards right now that exist, like, you know, Teferi and Lyra and all this other stuff. They all kind of um, make this one look a little silly. Yeah, I mean, it is really atrocious. Like, these five drops are pretty bad against Little Teferi. They aren't giving you something, like, very real and tangible when it comes into play. Like, that right. looting thing is kind of nice, but, man, it is very, very bad against Little Teferi. I mean, maybe this would be too, like, clearly we're trying to make this good against Little Teferi. If that were, like, a leaves play trigger that it deals damage to them and their planeswalkers, that would be really cool. Um yeah, because then but, it would, you know, pretty effectively nullify the Teferis, which would be nice. Yeah, at least Teferi is just a repeal. It doesn't leave a, a dude behind. Yeah, I 
I wouldn't be surprised if this just never sees any play. It is a $3.50, like, pretty interesting text-heavy mythic. So I'm just going to pick up two on the off chance that something happens to it and it becomes, like, a $15 card, and that way I don't just need to pick up <laughs> a bunch of them. Um, and it's neat. I'm down to try this, so yeah, we'll give it a sense. shot. But, yeah, more of a future sort of thing. Next up, we have Chandra Acolyte of Flame. So this is the three-mana Chandra, one red-red, for four loyalty. It has a zero ability. It says, put a loyalty counter on each red Planeswalker you control. It has another zero loyalty ability. Uh, create two one-one red elemental creature tokens. They gain haste. Sacrifice them at the beginning of the next end step. And a minus two ability... You may cast target instant or sorcery card with converted mana cost 3 or less from your graveyard. If that card would be put into the graveyard this turn, exile it instead. So this one's an interesting one. I've seen it see a lot of play in kind of lower-to-the-ground elemental strategies that get to really utilize creating two 1-1 elementals for a turn. Um, You know, if you have out a other elemental synergy cards like Risen Reef, for example, then you're just sure. like drawing two cards on that zero, which is pretty crazy. You are, you are um, doing it for sure. Yeah. Um, other kind of cool synergies that I've seen with this card is in Black Red Sacrifice. So creating two 1-1s that you're going to lose anyways is really good with Black 1-2 two for 2 that says sacrifice two other creatures um priest of the forgotten gods yeah get two, yeah yeah get two mana they sacrifice a creature and a bunch of other stuff um and just the fact that these element or creature tokens are sacrificed on their own there's like some number of like sacrifice cards that like trigger off of sacrifice mayhem devil yeah that pings anything whenever something's sacrificed yeah uh, we were tinkering around, uh, tinkering around with like a, a black red sacrifice deck that kind of utilized um, some synergies there, which was interesting. But mainly, I think that you really want this card for probably like an elemental strategy. Yeah, yeah. I mean that that definitely. I think that that's kind of the like, hey, put this into your risen reef deck and it'll do some stuff. Um, I, I think it also just like has a lot of sort of versatile applications. I've been trying it kind of in place of the Legion War Boss slot for pressuring opposing planeswalkers. Um, you know, like if if they play a Teferi and bounce a thing, and then you play a Chandra and kill their Teferi, or you pressure their Narset or whatever. Like this does an okay job of that. Not an insane job because the tokens can be blocked and it is only two damage a turn, but it. It also just, like, threatens to then also, like, flashback a couple of your removal spells, and if you have the proper removal spells for the matchup, then that is a really powerful effect. The the put a loyalty counter on each red planeswalker you control, you know, it's kind of asking to be put into, like, a Sarkin sort of deck. I don't know if that's, like, Jeskai or something like that, but <laughs> yeah. I, I've been overall like pretty pleased with this card it isn't great in every spot there's a lot of spots where it's not great um but trying it as a sideboard card it it does enough and is scary enough on some battlefields that i think this card has some legs yeah for sure yeah and i think that it's definitely a little early to make any like specific calls about this card just because it's what it does is pretty unique It'll be interesting to see kind of, you know, once the dust settles a little bit where where this card uh, ends up. 
I think it ends up becoming a pretty heavily played card in the format, honestly. But I could be wrong on that. Yeah, I can see it. Looks like it's like $8 right now. I don't think that's an unfair cost for this card, honestly. So I'm going to go ahead. I'm just going to pick up two of them because that's like the number of like Legion Warboss replacement slots I've been trying it as. And I've been like <laughs> okay. pretty happy with it in there. So I know that I'm very likely to run two at some point for that sort of purpose. Uh, I may buy more in the future, but that's kind of where I'm feeling. And like, it feels like an eight-ish dollar card to me, or like probably five at some point in the relatively near future. So this isn't like I a was going to guess like pickup. six or so. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. But you know, I'm not taking too big of a hit to go ahead and do this, uh, and I wouldn't mind having a couple around. So yeah. Yeah, I think it's fine. Makes sense. Next up, we have Chandra Awakened Inferno. So this is the six mana Chandra for red, red for six loyalty. This spell can't be countered. Plus two, each opponent gets an emblem with at the beginning of your upkeep. This emblem deals one damage to you. Minus three, Chandra Awakened Inferno deals three damage to each non-elemental creature. And minus X, Chandra Awakened Inferno deals X damage to target creature or planeswalker. If a permanent dealt damage this way would die this turn, exile it instead. The widest boards that I've seen in the standard consist like heavily of elementals right now. Oh, yeah. I was that was kind of one of the major talking points I was gonna point out for this card. It's not a very effective sweeper because the format that you really or the decks that you really want to sweep against are they're all elemental creatures or they're yeah. vampires, which can easily get above three toughness, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> um, so the minus three ability on this card is not really what you're playing this card for. What you are playing this card for, however, <laughs> is the plus ability, which gives your opponent an emblem that says you will lose the game if it goes long. And if Chandra ever sticks in play and gets a plus multiple times, that's just game over. I mean, your opponent's, you know, just not going to be able to survive three damage a turn or whatever. And it's also really nice that Chandra can come down and take care of an annoying creature or an annoying planeswalker. Like, you know, if you if your opponent plays a Teferi and pluses it and you play your Chandra, you can minus five, take out their Teferi. Um, and you keep the Chandra. That's felt like the yeah, most keep, impressive part of the Chandra. card to me, is that sniping yeah. ability. Yeah, for sure. It, it does a lot of work to take out, like, opposing annoying planeswalkers, like like that and then you know if they don't have their answer for it immediately then you know if you ever just get to untap with it and plus it then that's spells spells doom for your opponent yeah yeah i think it is a powerful card that does a lot of the stuff required of a six mana planeswalker to make the six mana planeswalker good um i think it's really poorly positioned right now yeah kind of the only place that i've seen it feel good is in like as like a, a one or a two of in the sideboard of these teamer decks. And then even then it feels like a little overboard because the matchup that you want it against is mainly Esper control. And you already have a pretty good matchup against those decks anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, right. it You know, I saw early builds of like the teamer decks that had like four Chandras in them. And I think that just like is not at all what the deck needs in that slot uh it just wasn't <laughs> right. like doing the thing that that you want there your your over the top cards need to be way more over the top than this i'm sure there will be points at the in the standard format over the next two years where like this is the powerful six mana planeswalker that is doing the thing that you want um i'm yeah. not going to pick yeah, them up sure. at 33 dollars right now 
on 33. that notion. Ooh. Yeah, it's it's yeah. quite quite incredible for a six mana planeswalker. But this card will be good at some point. It's just not great right yeah. now. And it's definitely not a thirty-three dollar card. I would I would advise no. not not picking it up at kind of remotely near that cost. I think once it dips down to twelve dollars, then then yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're just we're at a point where like six mana planeswalkers, like that's not the thing you want to be spending your six mana on right now because they're not solving the boards that like the ramp decks and the go wide aggro decks and stuff are putting into play against you, and so they can't be your big spell. You know, like Liliana is not is not playable right now either just six mana planeswalkers are in a pretty pretty bad spot uh next up we have chandra's regulator so this is a red artifact legendary artifact for one in a red it says when you activate a loyalty ability of a chandra planeswalker you may pay one if you do copy that ability you may choose new targets for the copy uh, it also says, uh, pay one, tap it, discard a mountain card or a red card to draw a card. Yeah, this definitely reads like the type of card that could never be playable and constructed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it does have a interesting like rummage ability, which is kind of nice. Um, you know, it just like gives some decks the ability to go like late, but we have plenty of cards that make the red decks want to go late and i don't think this is gonna make the cut in that context yeah i mean that doubling up on a chandra ability like unfortunately it does cost mana which it would kind of have to or or this card would be like very good um (laughs) yeah that doubling up on the chandra ability can be pretty good uh i know zan was trying it with like a Chandra heavy deck, including like doubling, you can't double up to like add extra loyalty for most abilities because like the plus or the minus is the cost of the ability. Um, yeah. But with three mana Chandra zero that puts a pl- puts one counter on each of your red planeswalkers, that does put two counters on each of your planeswalkers. And with that deck, like he got me, like I was planning playing around his four mana Chandra, like hitting ultimate, and I thought that I could. If I aimed everything at his face, then I could get him before the Chandra went to ultimate, but his deck was based around, like, little Chandra as well, and I wasn't thinking about that, so his Chandra ultimated a turn earlier and killed me. Um, and so that kind of surprising stuff is, like, pretty cool, and this might be, like, part of enabling that, but it's just so speculative, and on its own is, like, a pretty underpowered card that, like, probably if your opponent spends their second turn casting this, you're, like, really relieved up until the point that it kills you, but that's like maybe one out of ten games <laughs> or something. Yeah, I would say that this is probably not gonna make it in any context in standard. Yeah, I think that's probably right. But it's it's interesting enough that I wanted to talk about it for a minute. Sure. Next up, we have Dracuseth Maw of Flames. So this is a seven mana dragon for red, red, red for a flying seven seven. Whenever Dracuseth Maw of Flames attacks, it deals 4 damage to any target and 3 damage to each of up to 2 other targets. Uh, so if this thing attacks, whoo boy! <laughs> yeah, and we do have a 5 mana reanimation spell that gives the creature it reanimates haste. So, you know, like there's a yep. very... I mean, you know, 2 hits with this guy and that's just game over. Right, and even one attack likely cripples your opponent's ability to play the game any further. Even if they went pretty wide, like this, like hits their Nissa, kills the land they animated, kills a mana guy, kills something. Like th- this just annihilates most boards if it does attack. 
So yes, if absolutely. I'm if I'm reanimating, the thing that I want to be doing, especially in this standard format, is using that five mana zombify that gives the creature haste, getting this guy back and killing my opponent with it. I don't know that that's a thing that can be put together consistently enough to be the basis of a deck. Yeah, we just don't have a lot of consistent ways of getting this one into the graveyard, unfortunately. So I think that's like the biggest consistency barrier right now is that if we had some like entomb effect or something, then you know maybe I could see it. But yeah, because like you need to be doing this. You need to be sitting down and being like, okay, on turn five with this stack of sixty cards, I'm going to be attacking with Dracuseth. Like that's what I right. do, and my cards yeah. put that together. And I don't know that there's any way to consistently do that. And you um, really need to be doing it by turn five, kind of at the latest. Like people are casting right. this on turn three. <laughs> you yeah. Know? So. Yeah. Um, yeah, the clock's a ticking on, uh, yeah. on making your deck work, so. Yeah, and I mean, in general, just that ramping stuff is so much more powerful than the Zombify stuff right now that, I mean, who knows, maybe you do ramp into this thing, but you do really want, like, a way of giving it haste because it's so insane to attack with the turn with it the turn that it comes into play. So I don't know that that is something that we can put together because, like, casting this and then getting it bounced by Teferi means you lose. So, so probably not going to bother with this one yet, but I hope, I hope that I regret that. I hope it becomes playable and I'm like, man, I really wish I could have picked up those Dracula sets at 65 Could have pulled the trigger on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm not super optimistic, I guess. Yeah, I'm also not optimistic about this one, but it is sweet. Um, yep. And just, you know, that's, this kind of effect is just like what really uh gets the timmy in me going i'm like yeah this is what i want to have happen when i attack with a dragon and magic yeah. i just want to completely annihilate the board and everything else so um, yeah. and it does beat definitely most cooler. of the stuff like most nissa boards lose to an attack from this and that's yeah that is the thing that makes me that definitely gets those wheels going it does beat most of those boards we just need like a little more like generator servant style cards to <laughs> oh yeah good, yeah that would be sick all right, well, uh, next up we've got Flame Sweep. So this is two and a red for an instant. Flame Sweep deals two damage to each creature except for creatures you control with flying. It is our new Pirate Clasm. It's probably a little bit better if you have creatures. And it's only creatures you control with flying, which is pretty nice. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's nice to be able to sweep away your opponent's creatures with flying with when you have a sweeper and i think that was like the biggest detriment that the pirate clasm had going for it was that like every once in a while your opponent had a pirate and it was really annoying because you your sweeper didn't deal with it <laughs> but this one is guaranteed to hit you know deal two damage to all of your opponent's creatures if that's what you're in the market for yeah i mean i've talked about like my massive dislike for the pirate clasm like two damage is just not very much and most of the go wide decks like have the ability of putting their guys out of range of this and at some point it becomes dead and there's nothing more frustrating than having it in your hand against white weenie when they have like a benelish marshal and two knights in play getting yeah. plus one plus one and you don't have a spot removal card in your hand or even if you do like the mana doesn't work out and you just aren't able to use it before you take a big hit like it it goes badly a lot more often than like a three mana sorcery that deals three to each creature does like two is just not very much damage. Um, yeah. So I, I try to cut 
this type of card for my sideboard as often as I possibly can. But that yeah, said, that makes sense. It, it finds a place in those sideboards a reasonable amount of the time. So at 10 cents, I'll go ahead and pick up three and be really unhappy when I have to run it. Um, and it, it does line up pretty well against vampires. You're just typically able to... Because uh, their lords are only two toughness on their own, so their lords aren't really going to be able to help the other creatures survive as well. True, true. Um, the problem is that if they've triggered their new black one drop once it's not going to hit it and you're also not going to be able to take out Adanta vanguards with this card so there are enough creatures that have the ability to dodge the flame sweep which is can be a little annoying uh but you know if vampires becomes a significant part of the metagame then i would say that you know like the phoenix decks of the formats are are going to want some number of flame sweeps yeah yeah i mean that that makes a lot of sense It'll happen. I just, it's not a, it's not a cure all for those matchups, and they can go sideways no, in certainly. ways that this does not fix. That's all you just, you just have to know that going in and and try to craft the game around it that not happening if you possibly can. Yep, for sure. Next up, we've got Goblin Ringleader. So this is three in a red for a two-two Goblin with haste. When Goblin Ringleader enters the battlefield, reveal the top four cards of your library. Put all Goblin cards revealed this way into your hand and the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. Yeah, it's it's Goblin Ringleader. We've seen it in the past. It's back. Uh, it's I think that this is mostly an attempt at trying to push Goblins in Modern a little more. Maybe at some point we see a standard Goblin stack. But it's just going to be so hard to play any deck that's running all mountains to be better than the current iteration of Mono Red, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, I mean, this is a powerful card, but, like, its power was very based on the fact that, like, you could have a bunch of creatures that you put into play, it gets you card advantage, meanwhile you're using your mana on other things, mostly denying their mana. Like, that's not a paradigm that we have access to in Modern, uh, and it's certainly not something we have access to in Standard. Paying four mana for this effect in Standard is a really good way to just, like, allow your opponent to kick your teeth in on their next turn. It's certainly a powerful reload. I think Goblins in Modern needs more something before this Yeah, and I just think that, like... You know, people have a have a memory of Goblin Ringleader back when the power level of Magic the Gathering was just significantly lower than it is today. Yeah, um, agree. And, you know, paying four mana for a, a hasty 2-2 that gives you, draws you a bunch of cards is just not what it used to be. So I think that when people are evaluating this card right now, they are kind of remembering like, oh, Ringleaders are really, really powerful. But in reality, kind of these days, it's just not <laughs> so yeah um, yeah it's a little disappointing i'm not going to pick any up but that's partially because i have like two pages of a binder full of apocalypse goblin ringleaders um nice but uh yeah i i don't i don't really anticipate pulling those out of the binder anytime soon unfortunately next up we have uh, a, a new and interesting one so leyline of combustion this is two red red for a red ley line you know if it's in your opening hand you can begin with it and play uh whenever and it says whenever you and or at least one permanent you control becomes the target of a spell or ability an opponent controls ley line of combustion deals two damage to that player so this is another one of those like punishing cards where 
it's likely pretty good in a like a burn mirror i would guess <laughs> yes um, outside of that i'm kind of reaching for scenarios where you would want to play this card but you know if if modern burn becomes a popular mirror to be played uh this definitely seems like an interesting card to have yeah, this just feels like a weird one to me. It feels like a weirdly bad leyline of sanctity uh, in <laughs> yeah. a lot of spots. It, I, I mean, I played a match against Mono Red, and I was on Phoenix, and they put one of these into play, and it was actually like kind of a problem. They had like very much overboarded for the matchup, so they had a lot of like really Punisher cards. Like they had several Cinder Vines and and things like that that were just like making my life awkward but they had forgotten to, like, kill me in addition to these things. But it definitely, like, it's... This this damage adds up really quickly. If your opponent's plan is to kill your creatures as a way of stopping you from killing them, uh, ultimately, though, I think the, like, problem of drawing it is, like, you know, this isn't an overwhelming enough card when you do lay line it in to make up for the fact that sometimes you have to draw it on your draw step, uh, and I think that it, that kills the card pretty pretty massively for me. Yeah, I'm not super excited about it. I think it was they, you know, they wanted to experiment a little bit with the Leyline Shell. You know, this is kind of like a, a fun, interesting card, but it's just not really going to have a lot of impact, I don't imagine. Yeah, just not quite doing the thing that I want. Next up, we have Marauding Raptor. So this is one red for a 2-3 dinosaur. Creature spells you cast cost one less to cast, and whenever another creature enters the battlefield under your control... Marauding Raptor deals two damage to it. If a dinosaur is dealt damage this way, Marauding Raptor gets plus two plus O oh until end of turn. So another nominee for the Starfield of Nyx award for sure. <laughs> right, yeah, dinosaurs for a couple of months. Um, yeah, so this card kind of really only works in a dinosaur's deck. the The creature restriction on this card is is uh, pretty heavy. You just like can't play any creatures in your deck that that this would kill on etb other than maybe a lanowar elves and you really do need a fair number of dinosaurs because making this into a 4-3 is really really good that's where a lot of the power of the card comes from you know there are several dinosaurs that you can curve this into that are very very strong you know ranging what is it ripjaw called? raptor the, the, yeah ripjaw raptor um you know that curve is just phenomenal i mean you're hitting for four on turn three You've drawn a card, you've played a 4-5, it's just all great. Outside of that relatively narrow context, it it's kind of tough to, to really utilize this card as well as the card m makes you want to utilize it. Just looking at it, you're like, wow, this card can do so many powerful things, but the shells just aren't quite there. Yeah, I, I think that that is exactly the case. You know, like, there's a build of Gruul that can use this card but I do think you de-optimize your deck by a pretty measurable amount when you're putting a bunch of, like, main deck Ripjaw Raptors into there. Uh, like, I yeah. tried it, I played the deck. Uh, I mean, maybe my build wasn't quite right and I needed, like, more Commune the Dinosaurs and stuff to help put the stuff together. But the things I was losing to was not necessarily not drawing my cards together. It was more, like, my cards being really vulnerable to... You know, I played against Esper and felt like I could just never win. Like, I had some haste guys, but the rest of my cards were just atrocious against their entire deck. And there's not that much Esper out there, but there probably will be more at some point. And it just, 
when like people start deck- trying to win again, there there's gonna be a lot more espionage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although I I do think. Like, I've seen some criticisms of, like, people aren't trying to win, they're not playing Esper, but playing Esper in this, like, Risen Reef format that we're living in on Arena right now is, like, kind of miserable. So I I, I get why it's been, like, phased out a little yeah. bit. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, but yeah, like, like, Marauding Raptor kind of demands that you do stuff to your deck that just makes it worse when you don't have Marauding Raptor. Because uh, you don't want to have four Ripjaw Raptors in your standard deck. Like, you just don't. And yeah, I, I think that that cost ends up weighing on you just a little bit too much. Yeah, totally agree, for sure. And that's kind of always been the problem in my mind for the Dinosaurs decks, is that the Dinosaurs are just a little shy of being able to handle their own against the other Tier 1 standard decks that exist. Yep, yep. I I hear that completely. Uh, and especially given the fact that this doesn't have like any room for improvement in the future. Uh, once the dinosaurs <laughs> yeah. block rotates out, what what the hell are you casting with it? So, I, I just am not interested in picking these up. Yeah, fair enough. Next up, we have Mask of Immolation. So this is a red equipment, uh, one and a red for an artifact equipment. When Mask of Immolation enters the battlefield, create a 1-1 red elemental creature token, then attach Mask of Immolation to it. Equipped creature has sacrificed this creature. It deals one damage to any target. And equip cost is two. Yeah, this is this is basically Mortar Pod from New Phyrexia. Yeah, so that's it kinda is, cool. It's it's close. But the equip cost, I think, is it I would be much more interested in this card if it had equipped one. The equip cost of two is just a little too prohibitive in my mind. Yeah, I mean, that didn't really stop Mortar Pod from being a pretty reasonable card, but that was given, it, you know, an entirely different format and a, you know, lower-powered sort of magic compared to, like, yeah. the stuff that's happening right now in Standard. Yeah, I, I'm not really picturing the place where this card is great and i'm not picturing the matchup where they're like oh no they played mask of immolation like that this is going to be really rough to overcome which with a kind of specific card like this you need at least a couple of matchups like that so you know even like yeah it kills some stuff out of mono red but like you can't play this turn two on the draw you lose the token to chain whirler and then so I, i mean i guess it probably like eats a pyromancer or something on its way out so not the worst thing in the world I, I can see this seeing some play, but yeah, it just doesn't feel quite there, but it's close enough to a card that was playable uh, and, and actually quite good in standard that it bears some talking about and like you should think about it in like a token-y deck, although most of those are not red right now. Yeah, I I just think that this card falls a little short for any constructive playability right now. Yeah, for most of the reasons that you stated, it's just, I just can't really see a scenario where a deck would want something like this and or where it would be well set up against any of the decks that exist right now. I doubt that I will ever play this card, but this is exactly the kind of card that I do not want to have to find if I need it. So at 10 cents, I'm just going to buy some and uh, because it could be necessary at some point and what a pain in the ass to find a card like this in raleigh north carolina <laughs> fair enough yep 
Um, all right, next up we have Scampering Scorcher. So this is three in a red for a 1-1 one, one elemental. When Scampering Scorcher enters the battlefield, create two 1-1 one, one red elemental creature tokens. Elementals you control gain haste until end of turn. Um, so kind of cool for like some explosiveness out of the elementals deck. Um, works really well if you can anthem them in any kind of way. A lot of the earlier iterations of Elementals were running this card, but that kind of quickly stopped being the case when people started to better tune their Elementals decks. This card just wasn't quite there on power level to justify slots in a standard deck. Yeah, I, I mean, and I think the thing is, like, the discovery that the point of the Risen Reef core is not a tribal Elemental deck. It's to be yeah. as part of a ramp strategy. Right, where right. all of your cards are good and it's contributing to your ability to cast expensive ones. Yeah, and that's exactly right. Is that, yeah, the uh, the decks that were elementals kind of early on were trying too hard to be an elementals deck. They, you know, they're playing things like Scampering Scorcher and like the, the two-mana Lord for elementals and all this other stuff. And, and all those cards just made those elementals decks pretty bad it was like it was like trying to be like a a really strong sealed deck you know but uh you know standard standards power level is just way past that you know and while it is cool to curve your risen reef into this card and get three triggers and then you feel like you're on top of the world it's just it's just unnecessary um and the games where you have a scampering scorcher in your hand and no risen reef feel much worse and risen reef is just a must kill on its own such yeah. that you do not want cards in your deck that require risen reef in play to be good so uh, it's definitely a pass on this one next up we have unchained berserker so this is one in a red for a one one human berserker has protection from white unchained berserker gets plus two plus oh as long as it's attacking so attacks is a three one blocks as a one one pro white creature not bad um yep. You know, no. certainly if red decks wanted another, like, powerful card against white weenie, if it became popular, you know, we might see a couple of these floating in the sideboards. This is the best red removal spell for a Danto Vanguard, at least. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's great in red decks in any particular spot. As a role player out of the board in Phoenix, I've been pretty happy with it. I mean, there's a certain... Like, at some point, your your sideboard is just, like, 15 color hosers after this set. Like, sideboard's got a <laughs> right, lot right. better and more focused. But the role that this can play, if you want it, is a two-drop that pressures Planeswalkers, does not get bounced by Teferi, also blocks Adanto Vanguard in those matchups, and then that can be, like, enough functionality to make it worth a sideboard slot. Um, so I've been pretty happy with a couple of these, and I think that just protection is such a powerful ability that there will be spots where this card that just is a two-mana guy that attacks for three and has protection from white, that's enough things put together to make it a totally a good card to have access to in a lot of spots. Yeah, fair enough. At 10 cents, I'll just pick up a bunch, and that's uh, I don't have any problem with that. But that's it for the red cards, so if we move on to green... 
Um, so first for green, we have Barkhide Troll. This is green green for a 2-2 troll. Enters the battlefield with a plus one plus one counter. You can pay one and remove a plus one plus one counter from Barkhide Troll. It gains hexproof until end of turn. So this is definitely the two drop that like Mono Green Stompy really wanted when Mono Green Stompy was a reasonable thing to be doing. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, 3-3 three, three for two, pretty good. And even has like a neat little protection-y ability uh, because it's a troll and that's what trolls do. Yeah, that Mono Green deck just doesn't really exist anymore. And the green decks that do exist right now are not really trying to beat down as much as they are trying to ramp. So I think that this guy has missed it a little bit, but definitely a card to come back to post-rotation. Yeah, post-rotation we do not have Steel Leaf Champion though, and that's just, yeah, you know, a big impetus. And, you know, we already lost a bunch of the good, like, you know, Ronus and stuff like that that let the deck not oh, just yeah. be a, a dumb creature deck. And... <laughs> uh so, like, the future isn't super bright for Mono Green. Like, getting a nice two-drop is fine, but, like, not having Llanowar Elves and not having, like, most of the big payoffs for being a Mono Green Stompy deck is, is like, a, a huge challenge to overcome. Yep. Next, this card has been one of the more interesting standard cards. The, just the development of it over the last, like, week or so has been super interesting. This is Cavalier of Thorns. Two green, green, green. This is a 5-6 reach. It's an elemental knight. Uh, when it enters the battlefield, reveal the top five cards of your library. Put a land card from among them onto the battlefield and the rest into your graveyard. When Cavalier of Thorns dies, you may exile it. If you do, put another target card from your graveyard on top of your library. Yeah, so this card fits really well into the kind of rampy elemental deck that people are playing. It's a really good card to cast on turn three if you have the Llanowar Elf in the <laughs> Dork curve. Yep, as most five drops tend to be. But <laughs> Yeah, particular. as most five drops are. And just kind of fills a lot of... It, it bridges the gap really well in this ramp strategy where it's just like a big thing that you're playing on turn, typically turn four. It itself ramps you a little as well, so that pairs really nicely with your Nissas that kind of have the capacity to eat up some of your lands, uh, you know, if your opponent can kill your, your land creatures. Um, so you really do want to have just, like, incidental land drops that are nice. It's an elemental, so it, you know, it helps with all the other elemental synergies that you have. And it just, like, does really well to set up drawing your big payoff cards. Like, if this dies in the mid-game, you can put a Hydroid Crisis on top of your library, which is really nice. You can put, you know, a Tamiyo on top of your library. You can put uh, just, like, whatever big thing that you want to be doing next on top of your library. So kind of all of those things in conjunction make this card, I think, better than meets the eye, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, it just is that sweet bridge spot that does a great thing. And I mean, it demands, like, like there's all these, like, hidden pieces of text on the card, basically, or, like, it's interactions with other cards. Like, the fact that you uh, are ramping basically as high as you can possibly go between Hydroid Crisis and Nissa just, like, using your land. So, like, every extra land in play, even once you already have five, is helpful. Also, it is an elemental, so it gets that count up, and so it's just like a card that kind of gets there on rate and happens to trigger Risen Reef for extra value. So that's really nice. 
and it just it has reach so you don't just die to phoenixes or whatever while you're doing this stuff and it fuels your graveyard if you in the command the dreadhorde decks but so it like is really nice if you're doing like a sultai version of that with risen reef it works really well along those lines where you also have hydroid crisis and it's just like working in conjunction with all of these things to just be a a really good card so um yeah this card kind of rules yeah just definitely. like all um, of the and all of the massive. things have it's lined a five, up six. yeah it's so big it's really big and, and yeah. so it's just really interesting to see how this is so much better than like cavalier of gales like the things it's doing are just great uh the the value you're getting off of it coming into play even if they remove it you get to hopefully put like the perfect card from your graveyard on top of your library the next turn and you've gotten the land out of it which is valuable because you have sort of a limitless cap on how much mana you can use over the course of the game you really do want every single land drop with that deck yeah this card just does the things that you want in these risen reef shells it's very good yep yeah, so I mean the I think the question then. Well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've just been like really impressed by it. it. It just does so much more than the card says it does. Really, the question is if I want to buy a whole bunch of them right now. How much are they at right now? They're looks like they are like some of them are at ten, but those sellers only seem to have like one of them, so that's not really representative. Yeah, it looks like it's about twelve bucks. So I mean that's pretty substantial, but this is a mythic. That is clearly a part of the like most powerful stuff going on in Standard right now. Mm-hmm. How long that holds out, I don't necessarily know. But I... Th- and, and this card's power is not just coming from the raw power of the card. It's coming from its interactions with all the stuff that's going on. Yeah. But that stuff isn't going anywhere. That stuff is going to be here and in Standard and really powerful for a while. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I would even suspect that... If, you know, if we're correct and this teamer deck is going to be a major role player in standard, uh, this card could even be up to like $18 at some point. So 12 seems like a pretty good price point in my mind. Yep. And a lot of these lists, I, I mean, am I wrong? I don't know where the lists are at right now, but a lot of the ones that I've seen like do run four of this card. Uh, yeah. Maybe a couple less because um, it is sort of competing. Pretty much all the I've seen are running four. Okay. Yep. Okay. So you're just... Because you're also running a bunch of Nissas, but like that five, like you want to hit five mana as quickly as possible. Do a an additionally rampy thing that gets you on board. Like it's just yeah. good redundancy with Nissa. So yeah, I'm just gonna pick up four and say, all right, like the, I, I gotta eat this one. Yeah, I I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and so I've I, we've we kind of flopped back and forth a little bit on this card being the four of and Nissa being a three of. Sometimes mm-hmm. that's backwards. It really just depends on how many aggro decks we're playing against because mono red is you know this card is phenomenal against mono red and other such similar, a brick wall like, aggressive strategies yeah so yeah totally buy that and it wouldn't hurt having a couple extra copies floating around the house for when we play standard tournaments so oh for sure yeah absolutely um next up we've got healer of the glade this is a lot less exciting but a role player this is green for a one two elemental when it enters the battlefield you gain three life yeah it's um it's an elemental, so there's like some synergies there. I could see an argument for this as like a sideboard option out of the elemental stack against aggressive strategies like red. Like if you can play it on turn one, like potentially trade for one of their one drops, or even just like you know brick their fanatical firebrand or something that could be really strong. 
Certainly not an insane card but by any it, stretch. It's not an insane card in any context, and it's pretty narrow in application, so... I mean, the thing is, like, this type of card is very bad when the red decks start experimental frenzying, but yeah. in the the Simic or Teamer whatever rampy decks, like, you're not really worried about them frenzying because you're doing way more powerful stuff by that point in the game. Uh, right, unless right. they've gotten you low enough to burn you out, in which case this 3-life buffer is pretty nice. Um, it's probably a fine sideboard option that we'll see some play at times and would be silly not to have some around, so I'm just going to pick some up. Um, but it's not sure. but an exciting card by any means. Yeah. And the other problem with this card, I think, unfortunately, is any card that is... Any deck that I can imagine wanting to play this card would rather just play the two-mana pro-red card. Oh, yeah, Cerulean Drake. Yeah. That, that may be true, because the elemental sub the elemental creature type just doesn't matter, or the elemental creature type only matters if you also have blue mana in your deck. So, uh, right. like that yeah, that makes a lot yes. of sense. But the cost of picking them up is so low, I might as well get some. But yeah, you could be right; it just never ends up being the right card for that matchup. I I could certainly see that. That would be my prediction. I I completely buy that. Um, yep. Next, we've got Leafkin Druid. One and a green for an 0-3 Elemental Druid. Tap, add one green mana. If you control four or more creatures, add green green instead. This card is great. Yep. It, ha- it has the Elemental subtype. It survives Shock. Yeah, it does pretty much everything that you want your two mana ramp spell to do. It even gets a little better in the later game once you have a bunch of creatures out. You know, being able to add double green is surprisingly... It comes up a surprising amount of the time that it is both turned on and relevant. So, yep, pretty nice there for the Leaf Kindred. Uh, also, yeah. yeah, Elemental triggers your Risen Reefs, which is great. The curve of turn two Leaf Kindred into Omnath is really strong because you can take out a two-drop um, mm-hmm. or a two-toughness creature pretty early on. So, yeah, I uh, you know, this card is pretty much a staple in all of the elemental decks yeah even if it is sometimes like not quite you'd rather have paradise druid if you could just like play every card you wanted the elemental creature type just is helpful you got to get that count up somehow with playable cards and this one certainly fits the bill agreed next we've got Leyline of abundance this is a controversial one <laughs> yeah two green green enchantment Leyline ability, so you can start with it in play if it's in your opening hand. Whenever you tap a creature for mana, add an additional green, and it's got six and two green, so eight mana. Put a plus one, plus one counter on each creature you control. Yeah, so a lot of people who are really going deep on the ramp are trying out this in conjunction with uh, the, the pretty large suite of ramp creatures that we have access to now. Llanowar Elves, Paradise Druids, Incubation Druids... Uh, this new elemental guy. Um, all of those in conjunction... Uh, all the druids in Llanowar Elves, essentially. Which is also a druid. Uh, Creature type-wise, uh, at least. Oh, man. It's just so many druids. Okay. Yeah, it would just like, work really well with this ley line in play. And, you know, even if you like draw it on turn three, for example, you can still cast it and it acts like as an additional you know ramp element. Yeah, um, that's the thing, is that it does not... It's not nearly as bad to cast as other ley lines are. Yeah. And it just makes, you know, it increases the the number of draws that you can have that lead into a turn three Nissa. So, like, yeah. even if you, like, it it kind of fits in that slot of, it, like, kind of gives you eight Llanowar Elves. Mm-hmm. For, so you can play, 
you know, say you have turn zero ley line, and then you don't have your ley line or elf, but then you have a turn two mana dork, then the following turn you can turn three Nissa. Uh, so it does add a decent element to that kind of strategy. And the uh, the eight mana ability of put a plus one plus one counter on all your creatures. If you're really ramping that hard, you're just gonna get there. And you know, if you just like have a bunch of mana dorks floating around, you can really, uh, you know, you can really just kind of turn that on its own into its own payoff. Um, also, in like modern has some infinite combo potential just based on this card and like freed from the real with Birds of Paradise or whatever. Not oh, super nice. relevant. I don't. I really don't like the design of this card. I don't think that ley lines should be this proactive thing. It's just such a high variance thing to introduce to the game. And I, I, I really don't think this is what ley lines should be used for. It has, I've seen some just completely insane, like turn three board states based on this card. And yep. there's just a lot of power locked away in this and locked behind just a boatload of variance, which may be. Right extra exploitable given that now we have the london mulligan so yeah, that's yeah i was gonna bring that up for sure uh, so I'm, I'm a little concerned about this card's existence i don't know that it ends up like getting there but you're gonna lose games to this that just you absolutely it didn't matter what cards were in your hand at all they had the ley line and mana guys and you didn't quite have enough removal to do anything about it and you just get run over really badly yeah, I uh, er, earlier today I got turn two Nissid because my opponent went uh, leyline leyline forest Lanarelf and I was like, oh god, oh, oh no, and then they were right. like land Nissa. and I was like, okay, okay, and and then they just ult it before you can do anything about it at that point, point. and right. then they have their their all their lands in play and yeah. Also, leyline makes Nissa lands tap for three mana. So that will come up, even if you like have to cast it at some point, it will pay the mana back, uh, unless the game just goes really sideways. So yeah. honestly, this card has been pretty impressive. It is really high variance, and that might kill it, but that might also just make it like a thing you have to be doing, and sometimes your deck just dies, and sometimes it does insane things. Uh, and I don't love but these, that. Like and these turbo ramp decks definitely got a huge upgrade from the London Mulligan because you can just sculpt, mm -hmm. you can mulligan to five and sculpt just like you know, leyline, keep, the, Nissa, keep land, the ramp guys, mana dork, yep, you know, and yep. then you'll you know if your deck has enough payoffs in it, you'll get there. So, um, yep, yeah, seems crazy. Yeah. So what do we think? Are we supposed to be picking these up or What's is it going to go by the wayside? It looks like about four bucks. And it is a rare, oh, not a mythic. Um, I know, that's right about the line for me. I would not pick these up at $4. You don't think so? Okay. Yeah, um, Yeah. I, I think that the Teamer Elementals shell is just much more consistent and powerful than the Leyline shells. I can buy that. And I hope that that is true. Because I don't, I yeah. really don't want a standard format like based around whether or not you have Leyline in your opening <laughs> hand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It just all comes down to who mulligans to it. <laughs> not ideal. Um, so, all right, cool. Well, then I will go ahead and not get these and then hope that that is the right call. I have seen this card do completely bonkers things. But when it's on the other side of the table, you don't really see it messing up your opponent's draw steps. So it's it's hard to gauge until you play with it a bunch yourself. 
Next we have Night Pack Ambusher. This is two green green for a 4-4 wolf with flash. Other wolves and werewolves you control get plus one plus one. At the beginning of your end step, if you didn't cast a spell this turn, create a 2-2 green wolf creature token. What a card to exist in a world with little to fairy. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, this card is pretty cool, I think, actually. It's kind of created on its own a whole new shell um, in blue-green flash that is just playing only flash creatures and disrupt and counterspells, essentially, where the whole deck is... Because there's a new uh, blue card that we actually didn't talk about. It's a 2-1 merfolk that has flash that says whenever you cast a spell on your opponent's turn, put a plus one plus one counter on it. Okay, yeah, um, I kind of skipped right over that. I, I didn't realize, but yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, if it wasn't for this specific shell, I don't think it would have ever turned into anything. But um, sure. I've played it against it a couple of times on ladder, and I was I was reasonably impressed by it. And it, it really does play a lot off of the power of Night Pack Ambusher. You can get out some early threats. You play it. You're playing the the new one one flash that can draw a card. Also, the uh, it plays both of the flash merfolks and the night pack ambusher, and you also get to play the frilled mystic. So you have a a pretty nice suite of like flash creatures um, that also act as counter spells. Right, and um, anytime your opponent plays around frilled mystic, and then you get to slam night pack ambusher into play at the end of their turn. Like, oh, you're it's very strong. Really getting yeah. ahead, yeah. Um, and Nightpack Ambusher puts on a clock. I mean, you know, it's it's you know it's four power immediately, and then seven, and then ten. You know, it's <laughs> it's uh, it's doing a lot. So uh, yeah, I, I've been relatively impressed with that deck. I it is a little scary to play that kind of deck with Teferi in existence, but you know, it's kind of hard for Teferi to survive against so many flash creatures because you know even just like the the existence of the one one flyer flash you know if you're playing to fairy expecting the to like bounce whatever thing that they're gonna play and then they have another body so that fairy's guaranteed dead the next turn i'm not sure if it's a tier one deck but it, it is cool yeah i mean th this card will probably have a place in decks like that and it does make frilled mystic just a significantly better magic card because playing around frilled mystic is easy but if you have a way to punish them for doing that then there's just like a really uh, that's a super solid combo you know again like this ends up being you're getting like kind of what you pay for you're paying four mana and you're getting like a pretty decent amount of stuff for that but you're not developing like a super linear powerful thing you know, I keep coming back to these ramp decks, but at least right now at this moment, the meta is pretty heavily defined by that. Um, and unless you're like doing a really good job of countering the relevant stuff, like you will get buried under that. But maybe you do like maybe you can counter the relevant stuff and you have enough disdainful strokes and things that you can leave them with a bunch of mana elves and nothing to do with it as you like make wolves and and take them out. So, um, yeah, I mean, I can see this. It, you do have to play, like, a reasonable number. If the deck is built the way that you described, you do have to play a reasonable number of cards that don't quite get there on rate. Like, if you're playing, like, Merfolk Trickster and the the other Flash creature in your deck just because you can't have Sorcery Speed stuff. I wonder if there's a way to build the deck that you have more, a higher density of constructed playable cards. 
<laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, and, you know, it definitely feels like if that deck isn't drawing particularly well, it doesn't really have anything else going for it. You have Oct, which can smooth out your draws a little bit, but, you know, if you draw only flash creatures and no counterspells, your deck's not going to function. And if you draw only counterspells and no flash creatures, your deck's also not going to function. So you kind of like have to draw well in order for your deck to be playable, which is not great. But, right, yeah. and your payoff is not as just like massive and overwhelming as some of the other decks in Standard. Um, yeah, this card seems pretty specific, and while there is some power there, and I can definitely see it, I'm I'm just not gonna spend. They're they're like a buck each, but I don't think I'm gonna spend that right now. Um, yeah, that's it's a, not something that's urgently needs to be picked up by any means for sure. For sure. Next, we got a reprint of a role player this is pulse of marasa to an agreeing yeah. for an instant return target creature or land card from a graveyard to its owner's hand you gain six life yep it's you know we've seen this card before it's fine mm -hmm. the gain six life might even be like the, one of the bigger important pieces oh, yeah. of this card which is it's a lot of life and you know picking up something's nice but right now i just don't really see this justifying like a sideboard slot and by any means yeah, probably not right now, but it's it's more one to keep in the back of your head when you need to gain life in your value-y deck in the future. Like, you know, if, if like, the pillars of the format become, you know, Teamer and Mono Red, and Teamer needs, like, a little extra help, I could totally see them picking up Pulse of Marasa to fulfill that role. If you don't have them, you can get a couple, or you can just wait a while. That's totally fine. Yeah. Uh, next up, we have... The interesting one that you mentioned earlier, this is Season of Growth. One in a green for an enchantment. Whenever a creature enters the battlefield under your control, scry one. And whenever you cast a spell that targets a creature you control, draw a card. Um, this is definitely a card that has made the Naya versions of like the Feather deck seem to tick a little bit more smoothly and just be a little bit scarier. The card velocity that this gives those Naya decks is pretty impressive. Um, and it's kind of cool that you can on turn two play this and then on turn three play a two drop with like a God's Willing up. That curve just like works out really well um, so that you like you're not breaking your turn two if you decide to wait a turn so that you can have protection up for your creature. Yeah. And, and then uh, you just like keep getting paid and it helps, you know, the scrying like helps you get the right mix of creatures and spells as long as you have like a creature um, yeah, I, I, I'm still really hesitant to play a feather deck in an actual tournament. It's just like a lot of times you draw too many spells or too many creatures or, you know, you don't have the gods willing when they cast the removal spell on your feather or you just like don't believe that you can put the feather into play without protection and it's just so draw dependent, but at least cards like this help filter your draws a little bit um yeah i i've been a little underwhelmed with the feather deck kind of for the reasons that you described it's just like <laughs> it's one of those decks where when i play it i'm it's like super clunky and i never really get there on things going well but then i play against it and you know just get crushed everything at every moment yeah <laughs> you know yeah i in my experience it's just not something that i think that i would pull the trigger on but I, you know, I think the power level is definitely getting there. And I, you know, Feather's definitely a, a powerful option in Standard. I think it's at least tier 1.5. Uh, 
Uh, and yeah, I, I do think that this card gives the Naya version of that deck definitely Scott likes to stand on. This is a little too narrow for me to bother picking up. If I decide that I'm going to play Feather, I got a bunch of other cards that I need to grab. I guess Feathers yeah. and Arcanists mainly, and I need to get Arcanists for, you know, magic in perpetuity reasons anyways. But, you know, oh, for uh, sure. I'm going to hold off on these because it's just way too narrow. Yeah, and, you know, it's, uh, it's an uncommon that is only ever going to see play in one deck, so... Uh, whenever you decide that you want to play that deck, they will always be the same price. Exactly. All right, next we have Shifting Ceratops. This is a real one. This is two green green for a 5-4, can't be countered, protection from blue, Uh, one green mana for an activated ability. Shifting Ceratops gains your choice of reach, trample, or haste until end of turn. Uh, Yeah, this is a monster. Just the rate on this card is already super strong. It can't be countered. It's pro blue, so it just like really hoses a lot of strategies. You can't bounce it with the fairy. Um, yeah, which for a four drop is nice. Yes, really nice. You can give it haste. So for you know if you're doing it on turn five, you can go ahead and get in. It's got kind of hidden mode of gain reach, <laughs> which yep. uh, you should definitely look out for if you think that you can fly over it. Um, <laughs> how a ceratops gets reach. I'm not really sure, but, you know, there it is. <laughs> well, see, this is actually a Modern Horizons card. This is a changeling in disguise. He's just, like, pretending to be a dinosaur, and, yeah, oh, can just transform yeah, into whatever. Yeah, trying to fit into M20, yeah. I see. Yeah. No, I don't understand how um, the shifting Ceratops gains... Re- I mean, maybe it jumps out of the water, I guess. It's got some <laughs> horns on it. Um, right, yeah. Keep in mind that um, this can be targeted while it's on the stack by the blue color hoser gusts whatever ether gust I, I think it's called so that is one way to stop this with a blue card at least temporarily but yeah in general this just has a ton of application whether it's in the main deck of creature decks or out of the sideboard as a little bit of a whether it's out of like nexus decks or like flood decks or whatever uh this is a way to like put some beefy creatures into your sideboard that then you can use to pressure planeswalkers or just kill your opponent when they have sideboarded into too much hate and have not kept in removal that is effective against it yeah it just does a ton of work and is really impressive there are some spots where having four toughness and dying to lava coil is kind of awkward but you really dodge that when you're bringing it in out of the sideboard of decks where like lava coil just isn't very good and so like if you're bringing it in out of the sideboard of your nexus or flood deck and they have have to bring in lava coil to respect this card like that's a great exchange for you so yeah i mean um, definitely a lot going on with this guy and uh it's just gonna be a staple in, in standard kind of yeah uh just um, based on a lot of the text on it so and beats the hell out of mono blue like <laughs> yeah. Oh, reach. Yeah. so it can attack it can kill them or it can just be a wall like yeah card is real two bucks i think it's mostly a three of but i'm gonna pick up a playset just because two bucks seems like nice for this card next we have i just want to note that this card should always be in standard thrashing brontodon reprint one green green for a three four dinosaur pay one and sacrifice it destroy target artifact or enchantment it's just a perfect standard card and i am happy that it will be here after ixalan rotates and the fact that it's been printed in a core set i think means that watsi agrees with you i think it's here to stay quite happy about that um next we have a a 
much more interesting card, at least. Uh, Veil of Summer. Oh, man. One green. I'm so excited. Whew. Yeah. <laughs> One green for an instant. Draw card. If an opponent has cast a blue or black spell this turn, spells you control can't be countered this turn. You impermanence you control gain hexproof from blue and from black until end of turn. There's a call card called Veil of Autumn, I think, that is this card, except it doesn't have the draw card text, and that sees play sometimes. Because it, like you can use it to protect a storm turn or whatever this card just is great like it counters thought erasure counters removal spells it counters counter spells it's just such a powerful sideboard card and it does it all like like with card advantage it's unreal yeah veil of summer's nuts it does everything that you want it to uh it's going to see play in every format it gives a lot of decks the ability to have a a green cantrip that counters a spell pretty much every time it's cast <laughs> uh which is pretty crazy god getting thought erasure with it especially like on the draw where thought erasure is really powerful against you and you just get it and draw a card oh my god this is the best yeah. feeling it's so unreal. no for sure it's it's really good out of pretty much every green deck uh, i think that if you're playing green you just need two to three of these in your sideboard cards that it hits Notably are Mass Manipulation. Oh, jeez. You know, just geez. like yeah. any counter spell, any removal spell that's black. It, it just it just does everything. Uh, it's yep. phenomenal out of Nexus. It, you know, acts as a counter spell for Nexus when it's trying to resolve something. You know, it just does everything. And most of the time you're casting it, you're going to draw a card. If not every time you cast it. So, right. yeah, it's this card is very crazy. And I... Would not be surprised if this weekend I end up running four of these in my sideboard, just based on how how much of an improvement it gives uh, a lot of your matchups. Yep. It is a little awkward against Teferi, but at least you can respond to the Teferi with it, draw a card. They can't bounce a thing with the Teferi, so as long as you like had five power in play, or at least... You know enough power to push the Teferi to be unable to bounce on your turn. So if you have three power in play, it, it at least will have to plus on their next turn. You know then it's still okay there as sort of like a pseudo, or at least to make Teferi less effective. But yeah, overall just like really really good against Esper decks and any deck that is trying to use blue counter spells, black removal, that sort of thing, and just like has. And of course, at one mana, just gets a ton of eternal application and. Yeah, this card's great. This card's so good. Yeah. I, you know, this is just going to be a part of Magic from now on. So, yeah, um, get yeah, used to it. Welcome to Magic, Fail of Summer. <laughs> uh, 63 cents. I, I think it's rare that you're going to want to run four, but I think there's no reason not to just buy four and have them. So, yeah. And, you know, in two years, this will be a eight to nine dollar uncommon. So, yeah. Grab yeah, it. that's that may be true. It might be worth picking up a whole bunch hashtag MTG finance, but I'm not going to do it. Yeah, I mean, if you're really in it for the... Like, I mean, you know, just imagine how expensive um, Inquisition got. And I think that this is going to be just as much, if not more, of a relevant card to Magic than than that, so... Very good against Inquisition. Uh, yeah. Counter your Thoughtseize, draw a card. Thank you very much. It's really good against Thoughtseize decks. Going up a card that early? Jeez. Yep. Um, just for that little investment? You yeah. still lose two life, so there um, you go. <laughs> Well, no, you get hexproof, or, no, so the thoughtseize gets countered. Yeah. You gain hexproof. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
All right, next up, we've got Vivian Arcbow Ranger. This is one green, 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 so four mana for a four loyalty Planeswalker. Plus one, distribute two, plus one, plus one counters among up to two target creatures. They gain trample until end of turn. Minus three, target creature you control deals damage equal to its power to target creature or Planeswalker. Minus five, you may choose a creature card you own from outside the game, reveal it, and put it into your hand. To me, this mostly reads like kind of more expensive and kind of worse Domri, but maybe I'm like missing something here. Yeah, uh, I don't think you are. Uh, I've been really underwhelmed with Vivian. It just doesn't really do enough on its own. You know, you need creatures out for its minus ability to do anything. Mm -hmm. You just like need a board presence for this card to do anything at all, really ever. So that's not what I want in my Planeswalker in my creature deck, Uh, except for. In the case of Domri, because it's three mana, ramps me to my stuff, and then has a powerful effect when I have creatures on the board, like, that three mana and four are a world of difference when it comes to Planeswalkers. Um, And and even then, like, against control decks and stuff, I have had a lot of spots where I have Domri in play, and I'm like, ugh, I don't don't know about this one. Um, At least in those cases, I guess Vivian can plus and then go get you a creature. But, like, what a weird thing to do to have to build your deck and build your sideboard with the off chance that you minus five your Vivian sometimes. I mean, maybe you just, like, happen to have shifting Ceratops in your sideboard and, like, you don't have any creatures in play, so you're going after that, so now you can put something on the board, uh, and that's what happens most often. But I, yeah, I'm not really, I'm not high on this card. Agreed. I, I think that this one's kind of a miss in my book. Yep, $7. I'm just not interested in picking these up right now. Next, we have Voracious Hydra. This is X and two green for a zero one trample. Enters the battlefield with X plus one plus one counters on it. And when it enters the battlefield, you choose one, double the number of plus one plus one counters on it, or it fights target creature you don't control. Yeah, so I've actually been pretty impressed with this card. Um, it doubles as a removal spell slash giant threat. It's got trample, so if you cast it for a lot, it's just a you know a one shot kill. Uh, or you can cast it kind of, you know, early-ish to, you know, like kill a mana dork or or whatever. So this card is, you know, it's surprisingly nice. Um, I don't know if it's going to make the cut long term, but it definitely has legs and it's definitely going to be pretty important, I think, post-rotation. It just has the power level necessary to, uh, to, to get there for me. I agree. It definitely, like, requires some kind of specific-ish circumstances it is really flexible which is kind of nice but yeah like it's it's clearly at its best against like a mono red deck where it can either come down and kill a chain whirler or just be way too huge to ever deal with and it has trample but yeah like despite being very flexible it's not what you want against like esper or something um although i guess if you cast it for yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm the more I'm thinking about it, I guess it is kind of awkward. Like, it costs a bunch of mana to come down and like fight a chain war. That's a five mana creature to do that. That's a pretty decent effect, but still, I don't know. It, it's okay. It's an okay card, and is good against like other kind of aggressive creaturey decks more than anything else. I guess that's that's pretty much where I have it for sure. Yeah. I, at a dollar, I'll pick up, like, two, because it does seem like a fine thing to, like, sideboard and stuff. But yeah, I, it's not, it's definitely not insane. 
yeah, I, I, I've been pretty impressed with it in the times that I've seen it, but it's definitely not a card that I, I'm necessarily going to miss if it just like doesn't quite make the cut in future iterations of the green yeah. decks. Yep. Um, so that's it for green. Uh, next, we'll move on to the multicolored and colorless and land cards. We are almost done. All right. So first up, we have Creeping Trailblazer. So this is green-red for a 2-2 elemental. It says other elementals you control get plus 1, plus 0. Oh. It has an activated ability, 2 red-green. Creeping Trailblazer gets plus 1, plus 1 until end of turn for each elemental you control. I think this card is just a trap. This isn't what elementals are trying to do. Yes. Uh, this is definitely one of the cards that was played in the earlier iterations of the elementals deck when everybody's deck building was just jam all of the elementals into the deck and see how it goes but you know people figured out that you know as we were saying earlier the elemental shell is mostly about just like having a good ramp shell it's not really about a bunch of elemental synergies so um this card did not make the cut and i think it'll continue not making the cut yeah yep yeah i agree yep next up we've got empyrean eagle so this is one white blue for a 2-3 flying bird spirit. It says other creatures you control with flying get plus one, plus one. So this is the uh, w- the blue-white flying lord that we referenced a little bit earlier. Um, yep. If we're playing that angel, we're probably playing this card. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I think this card is cool. Um, unfortunately, I'm not sure it's going to be anything other than just like, you know, the, the, the limited archetype glue that holds the blue white flyers deck together. I don't really see this card pushing into constructed anytime soon. Yeah. It just seems like too much of an all in sort of thing. And if I didn't order that angel, then I'm probably not ordering this, but it's worth keeping in mind. And you know, I, I think I didn't mention yeah, it's a spirit as well if you really want more <laughs> lords for spirits. Although I guess in standard, we've got um, the two mana 1-3 spirit lord for the next couple of months at least. But yeah, I think just like a three mana sorcery speed lord like this is not very likely to get there. Um, and if I didn't pre-order the angel, I'm certainly not ordering this. <laughs> next up we have uh, Kethis the Hidden Hand. So this is uh, white, black, green for a 3-4 legendary creature, Elf Advisor. It says legendary spells you cast cost one less to cast. And you can exile two legendary cards from your graveyard uh, to until end of turn. Each legendary card in your graveyard gains. You may play this card from your graveyard. So kind of, a, kind of an odd one. If you've got a lot of legends in your deck, you can exile two of them for your graveyard to cast one from your graveyard for a turn, um, which is kind of neat. But this seems to be mostly a commander card. Yep. The only place where I can kind of see it is... Well, so I guess, like, the cool thing is that it does it for Planeswalkers because Planeswalkers are all legendary now. So it's kind of like a weird backup Command the Dreadhorde sort of thing. It's like vaguely possible. And the cool thing is that it does it for all of your stuff. And it also discounts them at the same time. So it's not that hard. You know, you've traded off a bunch of stuff. 
and then you can use this to like cast two planeswalkers from your graveyard in the same turn that's potentially really powerful but i don't know how likely that is to be like a good enough thing to do in a deck because it does require a fair amount of setup the game has to be going like pretty long before that's good and you do need to be like chock full of planeswalkers and able to make abzan mana for this this creature yeah yeah for sure um but there's Um, some power there yeah a little bit uh yeah i mean you know it, it definitely has powerful potential but it's just really hard to find that many legendary cards that you really want to put in an abzan deck in Mm -hmm. um you know modern or standard so yeah yep i i'm not really interested in this right now but it would be very cool if somebody started doing some things with that thing i don't i don't think it's impossible i just think it's unlikely next up we have yeah i don't know how to say uh, this either not not 100 sure how to pronounce this uh kikar kikar wins fury one and a blue and a red and a white for a legendary bird wizard. Uh, it's a 3-3 flyer. Whenever you cast a non-creature spell, create a 1-1 white spirit creature token with flying. And you can sacrifice a spirit to add red mana to your mana pool. It's kind of so, a weird like hybrid between like a young pyromancer and also like a goblin electromancer at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, definitely also pretty weird, you know, and it's in the right color combination to be, you know, pretty spell oriented and everything. But honestly, once again, this kind of uh, seems like a commander card yep. to me. Being three colors really just kind of does that. It makes it so hard to to fit into like the deck that you're thinking of because, you know, you think of a shell and it just so happens to be like blue red with no white. And now you have to like find a way to fit this into there. Like, that's not right. really what you want. But, you know, definitely an interesting card and definitely powerful on its own, you know, in, in the right shells. I'm just not sure if uh, there are going to be any standard decks anytime soon that are going to be, you know, built around this card. So I think, and also, like, four mana on this effect is, like, pretty expensive, especially given the three colors. Like, on uh, Murmuring Mystic, like, having the five toughness being immune to a lot of removal was, like, a huge deal and this thing is pretty vulnerable for, for what you're doing. Next up, we have Lightning Stormkin. So this is uh, a blue and a red for a Flying Haste 2-2 that's an elemental wizard. Yep, pretty simple, not super powerful. It's, it's a reasonable body. It's an elemental, and it's a wizard, so you know some potential creature synergies there. But it's just not quite there for standard playability, I don't think. Yeah. Um, I know... At least a couple of people were, like, trying it in Drake's as, like, an early way to threaten and make Narset and stuff not as big of a problem. Drake's or Phoenix or whatever iteration we are on in Standard. I mean, if you really want to take this last opportunity to build a wizard deck in Standard, this could go into it. Um, it, it like, fits into some stuff, but yeah, I, I agree that the power level is not quite there, but it could just function at times as the thing that you kind of need to patch up some holes by like coming down and threatening planeswalkers um but definitely not super powerful um yeah for sure this next um, one though next, next couple up, we do have a powerful card so this one is omnath locus of the royal so one uh green blue red for a legendary elemental three three when Omnath enters the battlefield, it deals damage to any target equal to the number of elementals you control. 
Whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control, put a plus one plus one counter on target elemental you control. If you control eight or more lands, you draw a card. So Yeah, uh, so <laughs> this has definitely been in a lot of the elemental decks, and it's certainly pretty powerful. Um, yeah. Coming down and like flame-tonguing flame a thing is good, and then it just like can give you some value as the game progresses. It's one of several like kind of must-kill value cards in the deck that help bridge you to once you've like ramped into the late game. So, I mean, yeah, those are my thoughts at least. Yeah, I mean... Um... It just does a lot for the deck. Uh, in in kind of like the, you know, if you're ramping into it on turn three, uh, a lot of the time you can, you know, you can ping off a creature, uh, or even if the, like, ping ability isn't relevant, uh, if you just start making land drops from there on, on out, you can just, on math just gets really big, and it's just a beater. Uh, in the late game, if you have a lot of lands already, uh, then you get to draw cards on each of your land drops coming in later. It... Uh, triggers your Risen Reef, so if you're curving into it after Risen Reef, you get to uh, get you know some potential extra land drop equity. If you hit a land off the top, then you can you know trigger it again and put a counter on you know one of your creatures. It just does a surprising amount for the deck, um, and just plays out really really well. And you don't need like a ton of elementals to make it work, but you know just with the the good elementals that are just kind of incidentally in the deck. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it kind of cements the idea that Elementals works the best in a ramp plan because um, this goes along well with that plan. Um, it has not um, been... It hasn't been, like, overwhelmingly powerful. Uh, I, I, it's not, like, the thing that's really running you over. It's just, like, a nice, oh, like, sure. middle-of-the-chain value thing that is threatening and, like, kind of requires a response at some point, but not necessarily, like, immediately, depending on what your response to it is. It, it kind of is helping to double down on the ramp deck's weakness to sweepers. So at some point, like, you just are all creatures. You're ramp creatures, and Nissa makes your lands into creatures, and if you get Kaya's Wrath, like, sometimes that's just, like, game. But in, like, normal, in, like, board control matchups whenever this comes down and takes something out it is pretty impressive um and is definitely kind of i'm not sure that it's a good enough reason to have red in the deck but having red in the deck is kind of cheap enough that a lot of people are are totally fine with it which i definitely understand um but the card is quite good and i think i do think that you're right it, like it's very strong and um it's definitely one of the elementals in the deck that that justifies you know that is justifiable to play in a standard deck because of its power level but it's yeah i agree that it's not like the card that breaks everything it's not the reason that we're playing elementals it's you know risen reef is the reason that we're playing elementals which is the card we're going to talk about next but right um, and like basically yeah. if this didn't trigger your risen reef you know it's helping you get that elemental count above the threshold and that's mostly yeah. the role that it's performing in these decks yeah I, I i believe at least that said, as far as like buying these goes, it is. How much are they at right see. now? It looks like they're like fifteen bucks right now. And it's a little high. Yeah, that feels a little high to me. I think I can hold off on these for a little bit. Um, I assume I will be buying them at some point, and I guess you know, if was if the way that Worcester plays out is like four. T 
teamer decks in the top eight, like all of a sudden these will spike to like 25. Um, so maybe the play here is keep an eye on the tournament, see if we're heading towards that disaster scenario and try to head it off before that. Because <laughs> um, I will need to buy these at some point for standard, I believe. I mean, you know, if you want to play teamer. <laughs> Which is well, reasonably And that likely, seems likely. Fun. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. All right, well, next up's Risen Reef. So this is the card that has been pretty much the talk of the town. It's one green-blue for an elemental. It's a 1-1. Whenever Risen Reef or another elemental enters the battlefield under your control, look at the top card of your library. If it's a land card, you can put it into the battlefield tapped. If you don't, put that card into your hand. Yeah, I mean, you know, it it's the coiling oracle text, essentially, on ETB, and it gives that ETB ability to each other elemental that you play after it as well, which is huge. Because if you, you know, if you, if you ever have multiples, you have multiple triggers, and each trigger is just better than draw a card. And it hits that sweet spot of it gives you value when it comes into play, and then it's also a must-kill. And that's really powerful. You cast it, and then they have to spend their next turn like, okay, well, this is my third turn, but I just have to lightning strike it here. I don't have any choices. Um, or else it might just run away with the game. If it ever puts the land into play, you feel so far ahead, it's unreal. And it just is really, really powerful. Uh it, it, super super vulnerable to Goblin Chain Whirler, and a lot of these strategies definitely feel pretty behind against mono red so that's something that these decks kind of need to fix but overall like this is like all you play against on arena right now and that says something <laughs> about the power level of this card it's it's new it's exciting it's fun to play it lets you do a lot of really cool broken powerful things um just kind of fits the bill for a bunch of sweet stuff that you can do so yeah uh it's like two bucks right now i'm just gonna pick up four it, it'll probably go down some but it's just like it's necessary to have them around so next up we've got tome bound lich so this is one blue black for a one three zombie wizard with death touch and lifelink and whenever tome, tome bound lich enters the battlefield or deals combat damage to a player draw a card then discard a card so this is like kind of the thing that allows maybe a reanimator deck to start being in the conversation this gives you a little bit of looting and also the body is like pretty relevant at keeping you from being run over by at least like kind of normal creature decks it's not great against like nissa decks or whatever yeah i could totally see it being a role player that you need in that reanimator deck um it's you know it nicely kind of curves into the uh the sack reanimation spell that we mentioned earlier mm -hmm. but i I just don't think that that deck is going to... Uh, yeah, it just doesn't you know, keep up. It's just not quite there. Yep, I agree. In my mind. Yep. So this card, going to wait on, but it would be really cool if at some point we're casting Tomebound Lich. I, I'd be happy with that. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, it's a sweet card, and I you know, I, I love Drafnum, Drafnum Unlimited, so... <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, definitely a powerful limited card, for sure. Yeah. Uh, next up, we have Yarok, the Desecrated. So this is two black, green, blue for a legendary elemental horror 3-5 with death touch and lifelink. It says, if a permanent entering the battlefield causes a triggered ability of a permanent you control to trigger, that ability triggers an additional time. Another commander card. Yeah, pretty much. The only thing that is kind of making it 
reach its tendrils or whatever Yarok the Desecrated has into Constructed is the fact <laughs> that it is an elemental. And that text is really relevant in the elemental deck. Uh, it, it doubles up your Risen Reefs. It doubles up every part of Omnath. Uh, like, that's cool. But the sequencing with it is weird. It is the five mana spell. Um, it is kind of, if you have a Risen Reef out and then this comes into play, it triggers your Risen Reef twice. And that on its own is like a pretty nice start. But I think that we definitely have been leaning towards Teamer being the correct colors for these Risen Reef shells. And you probably, I mean, maybe like a couple of copies of this in a Risen Reef based like Sultai Command the Dreadhorde deck or something like that is like kind of interesting. But it's probably like the tier two version of the risen reef strategy whatever that however that plays out yeah yeah for sure i mean yeah it definitely has some potential but it's just not quite in the right colors and uh cards like this that aren't powerful on their own definitely get a a a hit in my book you know i really want my standard cards to just be you know able to be independently powerful and i don't think that this fits the bill for that no i'm not really into it i'm not trying to get these uh at least the three five lifelink does kind of hold its own against mono red like the matchup where your individual cards definitely need to be okay but it is five mana and requires you to be those three colors and yeah just not super excited about it yep next up we have golos Tireless Pilgrim. So this is a 5-mana legendary artifact creature. It's a 3-5. When Golos Tireless Pilgrim enters the battlefield, you may search your library for a land card. Put that card onto the battlefield tapped, then shuffle your library. And it has an activated ability for 2 and Wooburg. Exile the top 3 cards of your library. You may play them this turn without paying their mana cost. So pretty powerful activated ability if you have... Um, you know, seven mana, including Wooburg floating around. Yeah, and um, he does you. He does a good job of like helping you get to seven mana, including Wooburg. Yeah, and fixes your mana as well. Searches for any land, puts onto the battlefield. So that's pretty powerful on its own. And uh, yeah, I mean, this card, it, it feels like it has a lot going for it. And you know, we did try to brew a couple of, you know, uh, like interesting five color decks that included this card. But it, you know, it didn't quite make the cut um, there for us. Um, but, you know, it, it's very reasonable that somebody comes up with a deck that uh, can fit this card in it. Because the activated ability, if you can end up casting it with powerful enough average spells in your deck, could be pretty strong. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the builds that I tried, there were problems with the decks. But the card Golos Tireless Pilgrim is a powerful card. I think it's a decent thing to do. I, I think you want to ramp into it so you're, like, doing this stuff early and getting up to seven as quickly as possible. The activated ability is powerful. He can set up uh, Field of the Dead, which is cool because he can get non-basic lands. And, yeah, the the card is good. Uh, I would caution everybody to please not try this card with Gates and do not try Field <laughs> of the Dead Scapeshift with Gates. Gates continue yeah. to be completely unplayable in standard. It's not, you can't put 18 comes into play tap lands in your deck. You can't. It's, you'll lose. Like, that's just how it goes. Yeah. Um, um, but. Poor Gates. But you're right. <laughs> yeah. 
It just doesn't work. It never has, and Scapeshift doesn't magically make them work. <laughs> but yeah, Golos itself is cool, is powerful. They're like two bucks now. Uh, I think they will be two bucks. Like, they're two dollars now when people are like already trying to make it work in Scapeshift. At the point where somebody makes it work in Scapeshift or whatever, that will be a sort of niche deck in standard and they will continue being two dollars. And if I decide that's a deck that I'm supposed to play, then I can pick these up. So. Fair enough. Um, next up, we've got a, uh, a a reprint of Graft Digger's Cage. So this is a, a artifact for one mana. Creature cards in graveyards and libraries can't enter the battlefield. Players can't cast spells from graveyards or libraries. Guess so, which card casts spells from libraries. It rhymes with sh- so, experimental frenzy. <laughs> Yes. So right. So this hits Experimental Frenzy and half of Command the Dreadhorde because uh, yeah. it doesn't doesn't prevent. This is a um, this is a good way to lose Planeswalkers yeah. to play. Right. This is a good way to lose to Command the Dreadhorde is putting Graphdigger's yeah. Cage in your deck post board against them. Right. No, for sure. Similar to Leylines, you just don't want to have a card in your deck that does nothing against their mid rangey elements. But yeah, I think that as like. You know, it's way better than having a disenchant effect in your deck against mono red post board because it kills all of their experimental frenzies. And that's, I think that's important. I think that matters. Um, also, if you are a deck that particularly has trouble with the Phoenixes out of Phoenix, for example, like I've had Grixis bring this in against me and it's really annoying. I can't cast Finale of Promise and I can't get Phoenixes back. And those are my main tools in that matchup. Um, it doesn't stop, like, Kefnet's trigger from happening, but it does a lot of work for one mana. I've also had people get it off of their Karn, um, and it's it's a really effective hate card for that situation. So this card has some play in Standard. Yeah, for sure. I could definitely see scenarios where people want to have a couple of these floating around. Yep. I've got my copies from Modern, so don't really need to pick any up, but if you don't have them, this is a good time. Next up, we have uh, Icon of ancestry so this is a three mana artifact as icon of ancestry enters the battlefield choose a creature type creatures you control of the chosen type get plus one plus one uh also has a three mana activated ability so three mana tap look at the top three cards of your library you may reveal a creature card of the chosen type from among them and put it into your hand uh put the rest on the bottom in a random order so this card was a card that made the cut of a, a lot of the initial vampires lists that I saw running around. I even played it in my initial vampires lists. But it's just not quite good enough, and the vampires deck on its own is strong enough to not need support from a card like this. You want to spend your mana on the stuff you you drew off of Champion of Dusk and also sometimes yeah. on Adanta the First Fort. Yeah, this card is just a little too underwhelming and, you know, was close to making the cut and definitely made it into the initial iterations of stuff, but uh, I don't really see a future for this card, at least in this standard format. Yeah, I think in general, just like Glorious Anthem is not really a good enough card. Three mana is too much to pay for that effect. And then having a mana sync ability on it in your creature deck where a lot of times, like, if you hit 
like in the mid game you hit a creature that's like good standalone you hit one of your three mana guys you might have to wait a turn before you cast it or you hit a one drop and like that's fine because at least it's getting plus one plus one but then like you spent like yes you get the card but you spent a turn putting like a three two into play for free and that's like okay but is it worth like having put this glorious anthem into your deck i think you just can't be spending your mana in these ways in standard so i, I think you're totally right next up we have mystic forge so this is uh, four mana artifact it says you may look at the top card of your library at any time. You may cast the top card of your library if it's an artifact card or a colorless non-land card. And it has a tap ability, so tap and pay a life uh, to exile the top card of your library. So this one's interesting. Weird artifact future site. For formats that we don't care about at all, you can cast it off of Workshop. That's kind of neat. Yeah. I mean, you know, it definitely has some spots where it could be interesting enough to uh, to play, but it, you know, it, it feels like if you're looking for like a kind of card advantage engine, in standard, this is not really ever going to make the cut, and in you know, eternal formats, it, it feels like there's got to be something better most of the time. Yeah, um, and as a like you know, trying it in affinity as opposed to experimental frenzy, I think it's probably worse because you can't cast Galvanic Blast off of it, and it dies to Ancient Grudge, and, uh, you know, all like all their artifact removal spells. Like, you would much rather have an enchantment as your card advantage engine if they're bringing in Shatters. Like, some of the Shatters also kill Experimental Frenzy, but not all of them. So yeah. I think it's mostly going to be a tool for, like, really weird stuff. So Workshop <laughs> yeah. decks or something like that. Things that, like, right. we don't really care about very much. Yep. Next up we have uh, Salvager of Ruin. So this is a three mana artifact creature. It's a two one. It says, sacrifice Salvager of Ruin. Choose target permanent card in your graveyard that was put there from the battlefield this turn. Return it to your hand. So this is a Teshar combo piece. I feel like almost exclusively. It makes that loop yeah. just really simple. With this and a chamber sentry in Teshar, you can get infinite triggers off of your your excavator or whatever you've got going on yep um yeah pretty much pretty much that's it you know i i struggle to see it having any application outside of that and i still am not sure that it pushes teshar combo into any sort of you know tier one playability i think the deck Um, that relies on a creature that dies to shock as its combo thing and like its backup plans are just really mopey i don't think that's good enough (laughs) yeah yeah Really, really mopey. It's unfortunate. <laughs> but this does bring it a lot closer and makes the combo a lot less awkward and obnoxious. So that's at least good. Um, but yeah, the, the the deck has not impressed me yet. Next up, we have Field of the Dead. So this is the card that we were talking about for Scapeshift. Field of the Dead enters the battlefield tapped. It taps for a colorless. Whenever Field of the Dead or another land enters the battlefield under your control... If you control seven or more lands with different names, create a 2-2 black zombie creature token. So you can cast Scapeshift with seven mana, find Field of the Dead and six other unique lands, and you got yourself seven zombies. Or if you have one more land, then you get yourself 16... Or you get yourself... Yeah, 16 zombies, right? Um, Which is probably... Probably what you're aiming for a lot, unless you're under pressure. Yeah, right. So 
you you can definitely it's not legendary so you can get multiple field of the deads which is really yeah. nice um and similar to how scapeshift gets exponentially better for each land that you have after mm-hmm. um with valakit you know the same thing is true with field of the dead you can you know if you have multiple lands you can just completely cover the board in, in uh in zombies i have played a little bit with this in um on arena um and it's it definitely has potential to be powerful, but the the problem that I found with these scapeshift decks is that you're really trying to ramp into them, but, you know, ramping out to that many lands is, like, pretty slow, and the faster you are, the less impact you have on the battlefield leading up to that, so I found that you just get, like, really run over by aggressive decks by the time mm. you're casting your scapeshift to the point where they can just burn you out. You know, but if you take like the slower route that like tries to interact a little bit leading up to that, your deck's just kind of clunky and bad. Um, sure. So I've been a little underwhelmed with this strategy, but it is kind of pretty cool that Scapeshift now has like a you know a powerful land a, that has you can a, get a to combo with purpose. Right, right. Yeah, like actually does a thing in standard. Um, yeah, right. I mean, as opposed to not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that it gets there, but, like, the existence of this is pretty cool, and even, I mean, it is kind of, like, it's only going to be in standard with Scapeshift until rotation, but I'm wondering if after that, like, we have a format where you can play, like, a many-colored deck and just be, like, you know, five-color value deck featuring Golas and Field of the Dead, and you just, while you don't get to Scapeshift for a huge board of zombies, you just kind of, like, get there a lot of the time and get this slowly accruing advantage and and then grind your opponent down yep and it is also worth noting that you don't have to be five colors with field of the dead you could be even just two colors and have seven unique lands in your deck there's you know plenty of unique lands at this point between you know two different basics and then all of the different dual lands that we have access to that it it works out right because we've got like gates and like non-gate comes into play top duels and we have the gain life duel so you can play like as many terrible lands in your deck as you want to make this sort right. of thing work yeah and they're even i found that like when i built my two color version there was just like seven uh like decent lands that i wanted to have you know the the shock lands the uh fast or the the check lands the temples uh, two basics, Field of the Dead, and then I think the the one like weird one that I had was Memorial, the blue Memorial, which was like fine in the deck. So you know it can work out. Yeah, I mean I think that this card, although it definitely is best with Scapeshift, just like generally can provide this weird inevitability engine to your deck. Um, yeah, it's a dollar. I'll go ahead and buy two. Like this card seems fine. It's it's interesting and does a cool thing that is hard to do in standard. Just like get inevitability with your lands like that. That's neat. All right. Next up, we've got Lotus Field. So this is a land with hexproof. Uh, Lotus Field enters the battlefield tapped. When Lotus Field enters the battlefield, sacrifice two lands, and it has tapped to add three mana of any one color. So kind of a fixed. Uh lotus veil uh really hard to exploit because it does come into play tapped have seen some like early iterations of twiddle based storm lists but those overall seem a little (laughs) speculative and and goofy 
Yeah, goofy was exactly the word that I was going to use. <laughs> yeah. card's a little goofy. Yeah. And it feels like it hurts your mana more often than it helps it. Uh, right. Just because you have to tap in chunks of one color that's three mana. I don't know. Yeah. I can't see myself playing this card kind of ever. So. I, I think I agree. It's just too clunky and not... like, And it also costs you a mana the turn that you play it you know so because yeah. it does come into play tapped uh and takes up your land drops so that's just not really something that that's something that's really really tough to use and then i think we've just got one more thing to talk about yeah all right last up we have uh the temple cycle uh so new lands these are the scry lands we have is it all of the enemy colors it's the enemy color scry lands the temples yeah yeah so all the enemy color scry lands um scry lands I'm, I'm i was actually super excited to see scry lands come back into standard uh they're surprisingly skill intensive and they are variance reducers which i always love um so you know you you really have to figure out when the best opportunity is to play your scry lands because they're unless you're like you know stuck on lands early in the game and like need to dig towards the land they're actually just better to have late in the game so right. you but comes into play up... top lands later in the game can also be a liability right so yeah so you have to like find that balance of you know when you want to play it on curve to maximize the scry or to maximize your mana efficiency um so uh yeah pretty pretty skill incentive intensive cards that you know can act as variance reduction and uh yeah pretty happy to see these in standard yeah yeah definitely um it's you know we gotta kind of get a a a refeel for a renewed feel for like how many of these you can put into a deck and it's going to be a little different in this format than the theros based format where a lot of times like you could have quite a few of them especially like you know if you're running course of crew fix like your game is going to go long you're going to gain a bunch of life some comes into play top lands are totally fine we're not necessarily in that format anymore. And so, you know, like I've been trying to figure out just how many I can run in Phoenix and it definitely messes up your check land math a little bit and stuff, but overall, yeah, just like figuring out when to play them is interesting. Having them allows you to keep weirder hands uh, because you're confident that you can scry into the third land or, or whatever that you need. And yeah, they've, had they've helped my games be a lot smoother and i'm i'm pumped to have these and it'll be interesting just trying to figure out how many you're allowed to run in standard basically yeah for sure um Um, i actually since i was not playing really standard i I was only playing like online during theros i really wasn't playing paper magic at all i don't own any of the temples i just kind of need to figure out which temples i should buy and how many i think i might start out just like buying two of each right now and then if i need additional ones i'll i'll buy more that, that may be my it seems plan. like a safe start yeah yeah definitely um yeah that's what i'm doing so that is it we made it all the way in like one shot through our set review all right well done us yeah good for us Oof. <laughs> give so it a stretch cra- cracking my back right now yeah 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 all right well so yeah i think that wraps uh, it up for us i think that does too uh thanks so much to everybody for listening really appreciate it if you want to check us out online you can head over over to mtggrindcast.com 
can check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash mtggrindcast. You can also find us on Twitter. The podcast Twitter is at mtg underscore grindcast. I am tweeting from at ccr underscore grindcast, and Collins is also on Twitter. At Collins Mullen. Um, Yeah, so short and sweet finish. Uh, Thanks to everybody for listening, and have a great week. Peace.